do you have any thoughts that you wanted to to start off with? I have a couple. I don't. Okay. Mine is a very simple one, and we'll see how long it sparks a debate for. Okay. How many clones of you, how many of you would it take to uh, kill a, like, gorilla? This isn't the talk that you want to have with me. We've had this talk about the orangutan. No, no, no. I, I understand that. What I'm asking is how many of you would it take three. to kill a Three? Yeah. You, you come at it from three different sides. Three. Yeah. I, all I need is one person to get the back. All I need is one person to slip in the rear naked choke on the gorilla while the other two are trying to fight him from the front. I got one guy going for the eyes. Do I got you? one guy going for the groin. Oh and I got God. one guy are with you, the chokehold. Okay. Being serious, yeah. do you really mean three? Yes. You're, you're, I don't know if I can take you seriously at any point. Why? Forward now. That's ridiculous. You have, no. One no, of the clones no, is getting his no, shit kicked in. shut up. This How is, many do you think? Fifty. Fifty for one gorilla. A, like a silverback yeah. male. Do you know how strong they are? Do I'm you aware. realize what a... And do you also realize that every one of their appendages is a weapon? They're going to be biting to kill. They can literally kill you with a punch. They're force. Again, I feel hey, like... there. I'm telling you right now. There is not a force three of you could exert that would even allow one of you time. I'm not looking for force. I'm looking for opportunity. No, he. those things are so fast. And three if, of you... It, you... I'm telling you right now, your size being a larger guy. Oh, that's not even a part of my thought process. I'm telling you right now, you wouldn't have the strength to rear naked choke a silverback gorilla. Their necks are just muscle. You wouldn't have the force. So what about the guy going for the eyes once that happens? He, you could not get your hand. Your either hand is getting bitten off by its mouth or your your hands aren't even getting close to its face, and it's going to grab your arms, and it's going to literally go sideways and rip them off your body. I feel like if this was something... This it, is like, a ridiculous <laughs> answer that you've provided. It was a ridiculous question. Three. Yeah. You go for vital spots. You're, I'm not sitting there trying to outbox him or outsmart him. I'm going for the groin. You, I'm going for the eyes. I If you can get to those things, if you shove your finger in a gorilla's eye socket far enough, gonna, you're hitting you're his never, brain. You're never going to make it that far. With two other guys to run no, deception? You, all it has to do is jump one of you and kill you with one, one hit. It could grab your head and slam it into the ground before the other two can even get over there and help. At that point, it's it's two on one. Then, I'm guessing right now, you seeing that, anyone seeing that happen is going to freak out a little bit and at that point it's just gonna pick one of you and kill you and then go kill the other one this is you've you gotta, always you gotta, given animals you like know how this much a male server back weighs no these things are like he might of, be 800 pounds yeah which means automatically it weighs more than three of you so I, again it's i'm not trying to pick him up and body slam him I know you're not, but what I'm saying is this thing is just all muscle. So how the fuck did they used to kill gorillas back in the day? Guns. You think that we didn't start killing gorillas till guns came about? I think he was probably, you would have to have spears and there would be several of you. Mm. I'm telling you right now, I don't know how much silverback gorilla killing was going on. 
prior to guns. They would have been rampant. They would have been everywhere. No, because nature still has a balance to it, man. I I don't know why I know so much about silverback gorillas and the way that they work, but the way that silverback gorillas work is they have children, and then those children will eventually grow up to either try to kill the silverback to try to take over and keep fucking their mother and be the silverback of that group, or then they break out and continuously fight through other clans of gorillas to try to become the alpha gorilla yeah, and the silverback of that pack. Ones get killed and I, I still other, think they're fucking like crazy though. I think they probably that it, are. But I'm what I'm saying though is there's not a lot of gorilla hunting going. Why aren't there gorillas rampant right now? Would people don't hunt gorillas right now? Or I mean, people still do, but tons of people hunt gorillas. Not, it's not like an enterprise, man. Is what I'm trying to say. It's trophy hunting. It okay. We can get into that. I'm not speaking up for trophy hunting. What I'm simply saying is this whole question was how many it would take. I'm, yeah. You know what? I'm, hold on. Human how beings have been fighting these things forever. A male silver. Well, I shouldn't have to say male silverback because male is silverback. Yeah. They're a patriarchal society. Way to bring that up, dickhead. No. Well, you, you, he needs the women. <laughs> I can't believe a silverback you get gorilla so fired usually up weighs this. between okay it's only 300 to 430 pounds oh my god still gonna be the shit three of us you. yeah no we have him outweighed at that point there's not a chance in the world he is gonna have the coordination and dexterity enough to throw a right hook to hit one of us while the other two are jumping his ass i get that he's super strong i get that he's probably fairly agile there's no way that you're telling me that a 400-pound or even a 500-pound beast at that point isn't getting his shit rocked by three of me. Dude. Holy shit. This can't be right. Does it say three atoms could be Gorilla one? strength yeah. is estimated to be about ten times their body weight. Okay. Fully grown silverback are actually stronger than 20 adult men. 20. Uh, adult men, though. Not me. And again... This isn't a strength competition. Like, we're not trying to curl you know, branches. You know what? Agree to disagree. <laughs> the orangutan one got you fired up, too, so I'm not shocked that this one did How, as what well. Did you, what was the whole... I forgot. Was it you with a samurai sword? Yeah, me with a samurai sword against an orangutan. And then I told you that I wanted to put some boxing gloves on him. Peter people, don't listen to this. I wanted to put some boxing gloves on him. This is and like, me this get is like one. that show. Remember that show where they used to put the animals together that never would have, like, who would have won, a lion or a grizzly bear if they fought? Can't remember what the name of the show was. It lion was one of those ones like grizzly on History bear? Channel, huh? Lion versus grizzly bear. Oh, it was like most dangerous fight or something like that. Yeah, or, like something like that. Yes, it's it's hypothetical, but what was it? You would boxing gloves on an orangutan, and if you could beat it up, yeah, just like sparring with him, it, like it would. I don't think he's got the dexterity to throw punches like everybody else. He's gonna hammer fist me, but I think I can get in and out and move and bob and weave. Eventually, he will get mad and try to come after me. But if he can't claw me or bite me, I mean, what's gonna <laughs> keep him from biting you? Just curious. Uh, mouth guard. In this I, hypothetical world that you're fighting this in, this orangutan understands enough that you can't bite. Well, we have there has to be rules. Okay, and he understands those rules very clearly. I, again, we'll just maybe we'll slip him a mouth guard in there. I don't know. Okay, I, I'm not a, an orangutan trainer. I'm just knowing now that you actually have to pronounce the N on the end of orangutan. I didn't know that before, so I, I'm working with a different set of skills here. I just. I, 
you underestimate my abilities. I think you overestimate your abilities. <laughs> I've been boxing so. for for a while. I I know the ins and the outs. All right. Do you want to le- use this as our lead in, or do you want to? Sure. Okay. I it doesn't really fit today's. I don't know. Maybe do orangutans have no, Thanksgiving? This well, I was going to say not so much Thanksgiving, but this is the kind of argument people can have at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, hey, how many yeah, everyone go around okay. the table and say how many of them it would take to meet up a male server by gorilla and then just let I feel like that would start some shit at the table. It just did like you, this if there were more people here and you answered 3, everyone would just look at you and go bullshit. I, you guys can all not believe in me as much as you want. You know who else is someone that really overestimated their skills, actually? That leads in perfectly to this. I don't see how I didn't get here faster. Was General, is it George Armstrong Custer? I don't know his middle name. He's such it a was fucking Armstrong. idiot. Was it? Yeah. Well, that's embarrassing. There's George. a lot of people in this story that are first named George. It makes me think that George was either just a very dumb man's name or it was very common. Oh, no, I think it was just a very common name. Just a George? We're we're still not that far separated, you know, from England to start getting rid of our names and coming up with, like, cool names yet. That's fair. I didn't think about that. King George was probably a pretty big deal. Yeah. So George was... Washington, man. People are still get, people are oh, like, yeah. we're reclaiming it. George is back to being George Washington. But, so, George R. or George A. Custer and the Battle of Little Bighorn. So why would we be doing this on Thanksgiving and not talking about the origins of Thanksgiving? I'm glad you asked that question because it is a great question. And it's something that you and I thought about for a little while when we were talking about doing this episode. And we've just kind of come to the conclusion that A, the Thanksgiving story is kind of bullshit. B... Nobody really knows what actually happened to start Thanksgiving. Is the is Thanksgiving the story of the first Thanksgiving? Is it the the stork story that we still all believe? Like that, the, that was the that's how Thanksgiving came about. Like how mommies and daddies were like, where do babies come from? And there used to be that you know story about the stork that would bring a baby and drop it in its bassinet and everything like that. Is the first Thanksgiving story just super, super palatable to make us feel good, and at no point no one was like, hmm. Like, you gotta be like, oh yeah, I kinda see this as bullshit, but you just go along with it, because now the holiday's more about football and food and shit. I think that it's... You, you kinda need to learn that at some point, as far as... You almost need to be lied to more as a kid, and we've had this discussion with a lot of different topics, but mm-hmm. you need to be lied to more as a child so you don't grow up to be a cynical asshole before you're yeah. ready to be a cynical mm-hmm. asshole. You need to establish some other life skills yeah. before you're ready for the weight of honesty about like where we all come from. You, you need to learn a little bit more about like accepting other cultures and making friends and like burying the hatchet, which mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that saying probably fits somewhere in this story, bearing the hatchet. Mm-hmm. 
But do you think it's just a pun and like when they're clearing out the battlefield, like somebody just makes him be like, "Hey, look, it's we buried the hatch," and the other one's like, "Shut up!" <laughs> You're like, and someone else in the background is like, he, "Every fucking time he says this, we've done eight wars, mm-hmm. and every time he fucking says that." Either that or it's just you like pointing to some dead guy with a hatchet and said he's like, mm-hmm. hey, they, they buried the hatchet on that. That worked out pretty good. But I, I think it's they teach the story to try to like help with. I don't even know if I would say acceptance, maybe just like being cool with enemies or some shit like that. But it's clearly just a work of a story that I don't even know if I've never really asked adults like, hey, why would you teach this this way or other I don't adults? Even know. Yeah. When you really think about it. I think it's be just because that's always been the long-standing story, and it's not. It would be too much work to contradict the story at this point. I'm not saying it shouldn't be contradicted because what ends up happening is even if somehow early white people and early Indians got together over a shared meal, the Indians will have taken smallpox back to their village, and everyone would have been dead. Now, what makes sense? is if the story was then continued by the people that lived, the white people that brought the smallpox, they're like, no, we had a really good meal. I, we haven't seen them. You know? They never called back. They yeah, never they sent never us back. back. I don't know if we did something or not. We're not going to go check. They'll call back. We sent them an RSVP for Christmas, but they but never came back. for that one magical evening that we had turkey and all that stuff, that all of it wasn't actually present at the first Thanksgiving. Um. That's that's probably, if you really were to say that that event occurred, that's how it would have ended. With smallpox? Oh, yeah. Or the Indians dying by some other means. Yeah, well, we saw it in South America when the Spaniards came over. They handed off whatever it was. It wasn't smallpox. Yeah, what was... I'm saying is it is it's one of those. It's a, If someone just asked, honestly, what are we celebrating Thanksgiving? And people are like, well, to honestly acknowledge it, it's kind of shitty. Like, it's when we came over and when it said that we made peace or broke bread with, you know, the Native Americans. And is his post, is he, were these the last ones before you guys killed him or were these the ones that didn't know anything because he just showed up? But at this point now, it's just like, yeah, you can acknowledge that that's celebrating something that was probably very tragic, but that's not really what the holiday is now. It's kind of a break. It's it's one of those just holidays during the last part of the year where you just get together with your family. It can be a gathering type holiday. It's like a warm up for Christmas. Yeah. Because you'll have sports on, which mostly you'll have NFL games on Thanksgiving. You'll have mostly basketball games on Christmas, which the NFL, I think, threw one on Christmas this year. So that should Mm -hmm. be fun. You start to get together with family. You start to kind of figure out like who you need to avoid talking to before or after at the dinner table, different things like that. You've practiced your meal. Usually a Christmas meal resembles somewhat of like a smaller Thanksgiving meal. At least in our family it does. I feel like you always have to go a little bit opposite. So like if you have turkey for Thanksgiving, I feel like you either got to go ham or like prime rib for Christmas. Prime rib? I feel like you can't do turkey like that. Boom, boom, turkey. Eh, I I think it probably depends. I think usually we just get a smaller turkey. See, I don't appreciate turkey as much if I try to go back to back. Because yeah. one of them is always going to be better than the other. It's either going to be like, oh, this one's better than the last one. Fuck, the one I made on Thanksgiving wasn't good enough, or it's going to be not as good. Turkey's and a fickle bitch. It is. It's it's kind of so hard to screw up to chicken. This year. Oh, yeah? Because you guys are going to head I'm out? White chicken enchiladas <laughs> on a fucking beach for fucking Thanksgiving. 
bet the Native Americans also probably wish they were having white chicken enchiladas on the beach. I, uh, to me personally, when I look at this and I wonder about it, I wonder how far in between First Contact and Trail of Tears that this supposedly took place. The Battle of Little Bighorn? Um, Thanksgiving, kind oh, of in the, general. Oh, that. Because Trail of Tears, I want to say, oh, was before I, this. Thanksgiving had to have been, that was like the fucking Pilgrims, dude. But pilgrims were just Puritans, basically, right? It was supposed and, to be one of the earliest. Like, it's supposed to have taken place, like, the first Thanksgiving, somewhere in, like, the Carolinas or something. I don't like that. Well, what I'm saying, though, is it was supposed to be, like, first, like, very first contact. Very first Thanksgiving. That's what I'm saying. Is like, oh, hey, we don't, you're just, you're light-skinned people that we don't know. Oh, you want to share some food? Maybe it did happen, but then everyone died. <laughs> Or they had a fight for the... On the, the flip side of this, though, everyone dies in this, but it's the bad guys. And surprise, surprise. Roles are reversed. Well, I was going to say surprise, surprise, and the bad guys in this is the U.S. government. I feel like we're starting to... Do you think we're just falling into government conspiracy... Or not government conspiracy, but just like, it's the government, man, podcast. Because I feel like everything we talk about that's related to the United States has some like government shady shit doing it. Is it because that's what the interesting stuff is? I think the government's done good things. It's not fun. Is it not fun to talk? It's not really fun to talk about those good things. I mean, we'll eventually talk about some of that. The Hoover Dam. They did the Hoover Dam. A lot of people died there. (laughs) Vegas came out of it. Yeah. I, I think that this is what something that the, not this story, not, not at all this story. The government should have never done anything like this. But the point of government is like a thankless thing for me, which I don't think that you should ever praise the government too much because it'll almost give them like a, hey, w- let's see what we can slip by these guys now that yeah. they're praising us. Mm-hmm. I think it's more important to call out the bad shit to just let them know like, hey, we might be cooler now than we used to be, but you're still on our radar because we know you pulled some shit. Yeah. And... For the longest time ever, probably the first, well, probably the first fight against, for the government were the British. You think it was Brits first or you think it was Native Americans first? Got to be Native Americans first, right? Well, before we had an established government, it would have been the Native Americans. Uh, it was kind of our our greatest because enemy we in still, the beginning. Because it's the British-American War or the British-Indian, yeah, Indian-American War. What the fuck was it called? French and Indian War. French and Indian War. So it would have been back when we had British backing. Because remember, that was against the French and the Indians. The name. It's not clever, but at least it tells you who it was against. That was when, essentially, it was the British in America. So as soon as we got done getting our independence from Britain, then we were like, westward ho. But guess who was living there? It was those pesky Native Americans who had been here way before us. All those guys that we kicked out of the first little original area were like, like, hey, you remember when you fucked us over and gave us smallpox the first time? Mm -hmm. You're coming to our world now, buddy. So the lead up to essentially uh, Custard's last stand, I thought it was Custard for so long. Like the dessert? Yeah. Yeah. He probably custard in his pants once or twice during this whole endeavor. Yeah, I thought it was custard for a long time. Um, Sort of soft in the center like an actual custard. Yeah. So this was kind of going back to to the lead up for it. 
there had been just the westward expansion had essentially forced you know native americans not it wasn't under reservations at this point but it was really starting to restrict where they could be and the idea of reservations is going to kind of come in later to this um they started to kind of it felt like they were just trying to kind of herd them into certain areas or put them in areas that we didn't want like oklahoma apparently sucks sorry if you're in oklahoma (laughs) listening to this this is just what we gathered from this information it doesn't suck if you live there now what I'm saying is that for the purpose of living there as Native Americans, it's not a – it's good grazing land, I guess, but it's not good for farming. So, like, they couldn't grow their own stuff. So that's, I think, why the early United States didn't want it. We wanted other territory. I, I think – and don't give me – like, don't quote me on this, but I think that I had read this somewhere that – uh, Native American territory in the country it takes up something about like three percent of the area in the United States, mm-hmm. but it has like seventy percent of fossil fuels and other resources like that on that land and underground. Good, which it, it's out in the middle of nowhere, and that is kind of part of what led Americans to push them out in the middle of nowhere. And there were a few different Not things. Fossil fuels. It was more the you're seeing just the resources of the land. Are you still uh, talking back back in the time of Little Bighorn? Well, back in the time of Little Bighorn, when they're defending the uh, Black Hills in South Dakota, yeah, they're defending it because it's their sacred land. But America wants it back because they know that there's gold in them. Their yes. hills, yes. And when they moved um, different tribes to different areas and put mm-hmm. them on reservations. They never went through and did, like, checks to see where, like, natural gas was, That's, where oil was, like, mineral-rich deposits and different things like well, that. Well, don't say natural gas and oil because at, at this point, that's not a, a resource that they're trying – they don't have the means to process any of that. No, but at this point, it's like the first inkling that, hey, maybe we shouldn't have moved them to this place. Okay. And over time, like, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. 60s, there's been an encroachment on the reservations and on the land that was set out for Native mm-hmm. Americans because they found that these yeah, they rich kept, resource areas yes. okay. were that's, reservations. That's what I was kind of wondering if you were getting at. Yeah, so they would find something beneficial that was on their land and be like, oh, well, we need it now. So you also have this area where they're putting all of these different you know, tribes together. And necessarily some of them don't all get along with each other. So you have – who were the – as far as the Native American tribes, it was the Sioux – I know the Crow were, um, there were some Crow that were actually on the side of... Crow and Shoshone were the two main bands of Native Americans that worked with the government, that worked with the U.S. So it was... Uh, The Lakota was kind of like the overarching large tribe, and then there were smaller bands within. The ones that we're going to talk about today, um, they were Cheyenne, the Ugalala, and the Hunkapapi. Okay, so the Lakota, the Dakota, the Northern Cheyenne, and again, these are going to be tribes that fit underneath those banners too, and the Arapaho. And then there were uh, Arakara and Crow Scouts on the United States government side. Oh, and then just I'll go ahead and break down essentially because we're going to be mentioning names, kind of the command structure during this whole thing. So the commanders on the um, Native American side And when we say Native American, let's just say I'm going to refer to them as the Native Americans are going to be like the... Warriors, natives. Yeah, because I'm trying to... But I also have to separate the fact that you also have Native Americans on the side of the U.S. government. 
So for the most part, when I say, I guess you could say like the Alliance tribes, the ones that were on, essentially the ones that were getting forced out. And then we can just say the U.S. side or the American side for the colonialist side, whatever you want to call it. I'm thinking ahead. I Yeah, I, I'm going to screw it up eventually because if they're on the American side, I'm probably just going to refer to them as Crow or Shoshone because okay. those were kind of the two that I know were a part of this. All right, so the commanders on the Native American ally side are Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Chief, uh, Gull, Lame White Man, and Two Moon. <laughs> Old Bear was one of them. Mm-hmm. There were, and those were some like sub-commanders under and everything. They were chiefs of these bands of Native Americans. And they... Sitting Bull was kind of their guy. Mm-hmm. And they had two that we'll get into talking about. I learned a little bit about these first two guys, Red Cloud and Spotted Tail. Bad motherfuckers. They were pretty sweet. Yeah, man. I mean, they're the chiefs of these tribes. And you got to be the baddest well, motherfucker in the tribe. Yeah, so finish off the command structure, and then we'll kind of get into the beginning. Okay, so, and then also, so on the United States side, there's a larger, so it's Ulysses S. Grant, who's the president. During this meeting that is um, essentially um, between, like, Ulysses S. Grant, the president, his next commander down would be Sheridan. Then uh, underneath him is Gibbon, Custer, Crook. And underneath him's Terry, and then underneath Terry. Sheridan, Terry, then underneath him, Gibbon, Custer, and Crook. Yeah, we'll, we'll go over kind of the, I learned a new soldier word, columns. Yeah. I didn't know what a column was before this. It's just like three guys marching together, isn't it? So it's No, like it's like the whole band in, together in columns mm-hmm. because they would keep the supply pack train in the back, mm-hmm. and then they would have people protecting that. Oh, I got gotcha. And then marching in order, it would be like a column from cavalry, cavalry, cavalry. Like, it wasn't just a big line that they were in. Mm-hmm. It was like a walking line. Like a single file? Yeah, uh, probably like, like two, two or three, three across okay, at least. Gotcha. But it's to head down trails when yeah. they would be seeing, like, they wouldn't want a big imprint as far as gotcha. to let people to following them show know. their numbers or yep. show their strength. Exactly. Okay, I gotcha. So what kind of, so again, this is kind of the culmination of all of these Native American tribes getting forced off their land, being told, you know, it's going to be eventual, that you're going to be on reservations, and... It just hasn't essentially been made official yet that that's what's going to happen. Because there's been, like, at this point, how many treaties have been made? There have been, like, several treaties that the United States government made with these Native American tribes and then Um, literally just broke the shit out of everything about them. So, yeah, let's just kind of start into the beginning because the big... The big treaty that we'll talk about um, is the Treaty of Laramie, and we'll talk about how that came about. So, kind of a little... Before the pretext of the story, uh, there were two Lakota chiefs that went to meet with Ulysses S. Grant, and it was Red Cloud and it was Spotted Tail. And Ulysses S. Grant, at this point, wanted to buy the Black Hills away from Red Tail or Red Cloud and Spotted Tail. They were kind of like the tribal chiefs mm-hmm. of that area. And they're both like, no, you're not going to buy our land from us. This is sacred land. It's mm-hmm. a place where our people have thrived for years and years, even there before you kick- religi- Yeah, it was some type of religious mm-hmm. element to it, too. It was like they're, it's like Mecca. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good way to look at it. And this first meeting that they had took place in the spring of 1875. And after Red Cloud and Spotted Tail just basically told them, no, you're not getting our land, they went back home to the tribes and were talking 
And during this meeting, there were kind of veiled threats about, well, you're not keeping up your side of this treaty. And the treaty that we're talking about with this is the Treaty of Fort Laramie. It was signed in the fall of 1868, so about 10 years beforehand. Mm -hmm. It put an end to something called the Red Cloud War. And it was Red Cloud, the Lakota chief, had successfully led bands of Native Americans against the Americans to fight them and keep them out of the Black Hills. Mm -hmm. And there was a, like a traveling route, I guess, that went through there. They had three forts that were on this traveling route. And they realized that it was like white people trying to invade their Mm -hmm. area after they had already been pushed into this area. So... It was the only treaty that the U.S. government had ever signed for a ceasefire because they were losing against the Native American population. Is this the one that had the condition that all the forts were to be torn down? Um, people traveling westward could no longer use the any of the Indian territory to travel through. They had to take the way around and everything. The route would be discontinued. Mm-hmm. And the road was to be like destroyed or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was all because this Chief Red Cloud had successfully fought using bands of Native Americans to push them back out of the Black Hills and out of the Dakotas, which is awesome to know that even before this, because things get a little, a lot shittier after Little Bighorn and after that war happens for the Native American population, just as far as America was like, we lost this, you made us look stupid, we're just going to come at you full force. So Red Cloud and Spotted Tail go back to their reservation. And at this point, they had certain reservations in that area where the government had basically set up areas for them. But within the Black Hills, as a nomadic people, the Native Americans were, they would still move in and out and around. They would Mm -hmm. set up villages. There would be smaller bands in these tribes that would be moving out to do different things, hunting, different shit like that. They decided that it was just going to be like a... They weren't ever going to win. The United States was either going to pay them for this land that they had or they were going to take it by force. So they had the second meeting about two months later. Red Cloud and Spotted Tail showed up. They said, we decided that we're going to sell you this land. Our asking price for this land is, it was... 70 million? Yeah, 70 million dollars. Which, back in 1875, that would be about two billion dollars today. Mm-hmm. So a formidable amount of money, but all of the gold and everything that's been taken out of the Black Hills since then mm-hmm. is estimated at today's prices to be about $78 billion about dollars worth Did of gold. Did you ever really know what Black Hills gold was, what it meant when, like, I remember buying a ring or looking at a ring for a girlfriend in high school or a girl, and I remember it was something about the Black Hills gold had the two little flower leaves that kind of intertwined. Do you remember something? I've like never that? heard of Black Hills gold, honestly. Really? Yeah. So, like, the jewelry store that was, like, in town sold Black Hills gold. And I it was before me looking into this stuff, I was like, oh, shit. Like, that's gold coming out of, still fucking coming out of those mountains. I, I had no idea. I knew that it was kind of a nutrient-rich area, or like a... Not nutrient, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> mineral rich. Mineral rich, yes. <laughs> Nutrients, <laughs> minerals. Nutrient rich. <laughs> it's a mineral rich area. I knew that they had a lot of that, and I do know that in North Dakota and South Dakota, obviously, we get a lot of oil, oh, oil from there, yeah. too. So it's there's a lot of minerals in that area that were precious. I'm sure, like you say, they didn't know about the black gold that was there in the Black Hills. They were just focused on the nuggets that so, were there. So $78 billion is what the price, essentially, the or yeah. Estimated price. So a, a drop in the bucket, yeah. $70 million, $2, million, or $2 billion in today's mm-hmm. money, 
And the country was kind of in an economic downturn, which I don't know what the economy would have been in the 1860s. What slave trade, obviously, cotton, different things like that, but we didn't have like a full... Wait, what? Are you asking what the economy was like back this? Yeah. This was after, this was like 40 years after the Civil War. We still don't have the slave trade in cotton. That shit's done, man. Uh, First slaves came over in like the 1600s. This is in the 18... I'm aware. Okay, but this this is after the Civil War, because a lot of these guys, like Ulysses S. Grant, or not, Grant was a hero in the Civil War. Custer was a general in the Civil War. This is like 30, like this doesn't occur to like 30 or 40 years after the end of the Civil War. We still had plantations and indentured servitude. I mean, there is like the area that we talked about in, was it Galveston, where for Juneteenth and everything. But no, like slavery was technically, I mean, there were places in the South that probably held on to until they were forced to stop doing it. But this is 30 or 40 years later. Am I blowing your mind right now with this? No, I'm just trying to figure out what... That's why there's... I think that... Do you think that... Oh, that could be where the economy might have taken a downturn because... The South didn't know how to... You know, maybe they took it... It was such a huge part of the economy that all of a sudden... Okay. Yeah, no, that that could absolutely describe the economic distress Mm -hmm. now that you you point that out. That's... That makes some sense. But the economic distress was enough to where they wanted these Black Hills because they knew that it was a gold-rich area because it the would, year... It forced so many people to migrate out west, spread people out, start building additional you know, settlements out there. I think that was one of the big things, too, is they saw what happened when... When was the gold rush in California? 49. 1949. That was... N- That's where we get the 49ers. Maybe it was 1849? Not 1949. It was after. Okay, 1849 maybe. I don't fucking know. Okay, hold on. Regardless, the other thing I don't understand with this is how would you transport $70 million to the Native Americans and how would they secure that? Uh, It would be made up. There was a treaty that they had initially made. I'm not sure if it was the one in Fort Laramie. One of the initial treaties that they had with the Native Americans was it was basically they were trying to assimilate. What their biggest thing was for a while they would just make things sorry so difficult on the Native Americans that they would almost be forced to assimilate into our way of life, like or the early settlers' way of life. That's where you fucking see like those images of like native American kids being forced into like fucking Christian schools and shit where they're trying to fucking reprogram everything. Like that was the goals. If they could like separate them, they could, we could turn these savages into like contributing members of society. And it's so fucked up. It wasn't even contributing members of society though. It was just trying to whitewash their ancestry and then hold them in these places. Cause those like the native American schools that they had Mm -hmm. and the areas that they were taken to. They're all like every school that was being built there, a hospital when they were like saying, well, we're building schools and hospitals. Everyone's like, well, how is that not good? Well, when they're like, um, what am I trying to missionary hospitals and missionary, like, no, like you have, you're trying to brainwash people. You're trying to convert them to your religion. A lot of them were run by religious organizations. <laughs> really terrible things. We'll talk about some of those in some be- or some later episodes because the the Trail of Tears is fascinating in and of itself. The way that the Native American culture was just systematically shit on is such a sad thing. But it's so important to learn, like, 
that it, as bad as everything sounds, it's way worse than a lot of people realize. Yeah. Hey, even up to this day, I think the Supreme Court just took on, uh, it wasn't like an Indian Resettlement Act, but the American government still calls them Indians. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just easier There's for, a commission or a, for them to I'm say. I'm trying to think who it is that like the Indian Affairs Bureau of Indian Affairs. Affairs. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they still get away with a lot of shit, and there's some stuff in front of the Supreme Court now that they're trying to work out with adoption and different things like that. But getting back to this, the Americans just said, no, we're not We're not going to pay you that much money, probably because they didn't have $70 million mm-hmm. at the time to fork over. But the other part is, is they knew that they had already battled a lot of tribes and they'd already taken over a lot of land, so I'm sure they were ready to go. Um, Grant declined at the second meeting. They knew that they weren't ever going to get another shot at it again, basically. that The Native Americans went back to their land, to their reservations, and they just knew, like, it's, it's only a matter of time at this point. And then a couple months after that, there's a big meeting in Washington. And, excuse me, Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, is talking to these, uh, they were called like Indian investigators or something, but they were basically sent out onto the reservations to make sure that they were following the treaties. Mm-hmm. And Oh, that the Indians were keeping up their side of it. Yep. Oh, okay. And uh, these treaties are written in such a way to where Americans at that point would probably have a tough time understanding it, so how in the shit would somebody that doesn't speak the same language be well, able to what understand they said it? they would do. So up to this point, they've already broken several treaties with like different Native American tribes. Oh, yeah. There was one tribe that they were supposed to pay like $10,000 for 50 years, a month for 50 years. Mm-hmm. To the, or no, it might have been $10,000 a year to this tribe for 50 years. And when they went to go ahead and have them sign it, they'd already lowered it down to ten. There were there was all kinds of stuff. And what they would do is because you were, you know, a lot of these chiefs, of course, are like brilliant, like strategic generals and, you know, battlefield commanders. They can keep the economy of the tribes going. There's a lot of successful tribes. The only reason oh, they're yeah. not around today is because we got it came in and fucked everything up. Because we just continuously sow discontent and shit on them and put their children in church or in yes. schools. But they would write these essential treaties leaving so much room for interpretation or loopholes that they could use excuses to just break these treaties without any type of like legal recourse. And that's, and who are they going to take it to anyway? The government, uh, the who, government who that is? they're bargaining with is not yeah. going to have their side. Like, you know what? We will hear your case. And it's just the scene where someone just turns around in their swivel chair and then it's like, hi, what would you like to talk about today? And it's the yeah. same fucking person. You're trying to file a complaint against the person taking and the complaint. You want to talk to a manager, unfortunately, you're already talking mm-hmm. to the manager. And that's just basically what they did. They considered the Treaty of Fort Laramie broken by the native side because these certain things that they deemed inappropriate and correct was enough to break it. Um, and prior to these meetings that they had in 1875 and 1874, Custer and a thousand soldiers were sent kind of into the Black Hills to investigate. They wanted to put another fort on there in a different spot away from there because they had an inkling that there was some other things. Custer ended up finding some gold deposits there, comes back, tells Grant what he found. Grant finally greenlights the plan. Hey, we're going to step in there. We're going to make it happen. Okay, so 
before we go further in the, the series of events, since Custer is essentially going to be the main player in this, this guy is a fucking douche. So he went to West Point and... Graduated last in his class. 34 out of 34. Uh, they say, and I think he may have said the reason it was 34 out of 34, he would have placed higher, but a whole bunch of people had to come out of his graduating class to go fight the Civil War. He right. also... sure. I'm not sure to which degree he participated in the Civil War. I do know that there was something about him being promoted to general, and they called him the boy general, because he was like in his like late 20s, maybe early 30s when he got promoted. I think he was, <coughs> excuse me, fairly instrumental because going into uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, he wasn't an actual general. He was something below a general. Oh, I'll tell you how that happened. Okay. Oh, so yeah. there's, be- there's a story with how that all happened. There's a story with how this whole thing could have been avoided. So he has, he at some point during the Civil War, because him and Grant are under kind of the same umbrella, Grant knows him, or at least knows of him. And somehow Custer is kind of, because he's like this boy general, somehow he's almost like a war celebrity in a weird way, like the public knows of him. And after the Civil War and Grant's president, for some reason, he... I think kind of the fame or something like that might get to his head. And Custer accuses Grant's brother. I'm trying to remember his name. It starts with an O. Ulysses? No, it's like Otto or something Orenthal. Like that, who was like the attorney general. Accuses him of being corrupt and taking payoffs to like give beneficial contracts to certain businesses. Oh, because this is the one that he had. Before this all kicks off, he has to go back and testify. Yes. And so That's he right. testifies all of these like accusations and which ends up being proven that he he says he witnessed this happen that there was like an exchange some something that happened with him being corrupt come to find out from his like superior officers he's like well he couldn't have witnessed this because we were in this place at that time completely discredits him so they fucking kick him out of the military well what ends up happening is a fucking campaign gets him back in because a bunch of people end up like writing letters or some type of public opinion campaign Gets him back in, and that's why he gets put in charge of the 7th Cavalry. So pretty much, I think um, Grant was like, you know what, fine, I'll let this guy back in, but fucking send him out to the, send him out west. Send him out to Dakota. Yeah. Because there probably wasn't a north and south at this point, it was just all Dakota. So the other thing as well as, you know, so he that's where he his demotion, essentially, it's not quite a demotion because he was kicked out, but then he got put into the role of, I think it was like Lieutenant something, right? Lieutenant Colonel. Probably, because they still call him General, but he has generals that he takes orders from. Yes. So, so under his command, this guy, who, so 34th in his class, I think they said this guy for demerits at West Point got something like 700 plus demerits. And, Last in his class, first in demerits? And he was he left a year early. They <laughs> probably just passed him through. You got to think at this point during the Civil War, and I don't know what point during the Civil War he went through and everything, they were probably hunting for as many generals as possible. Anybody that was able to get into West Point, I'm sure, was probably going to graduate. Anybody that had any experience. So, like, think of this. You're in 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 a time where this is about 30 to 40 years after the Civil War. There's a whole generation of children that weren't born because all of these guys had to go off to war, fight, a bunch of yeah. guys died. And so you took a huge population hit. So they were really hurting for soldiers. In fact, a big contingent of like Custer's troops and the troops that went with them were like Irish immigrants. 
that instead of essentially coming over to this country and, you know, only having the shirt on their back, you could be like, there were basically recruiters at the docks when people were getting off boats being like, hey, you want to sign up? You want food? You want a place to stay? You want some money? And then afterward, you can go make your life after you've served. You can make life, your life in America. It was like high school recruiters now were what they were doing at the coming off of Ellis Island then. And not to say that some of these guys didn't serve in, you know, the, I don't know if there was an Irish army or something like that at that point, but they were trained. But even training at that point was really nothing. It was going to the firing range. And the way these guys, they were basically kind of a couple schools of thought when you have a command structure and you have your like soldiers. So can a good group of soldiers overcome bad commanding to win or can a good commander take bad soldiers and overcome that to win? You have the situation here where you have bad soldiers and a bad commander trying to do something. Oh, from what it sounds like, Custer knew that he wasn't a good commander because, and we'll break it down kind of when the battle starts, but Custer has a lot of axes to grind with guys that are underneath him. Uh, a guy named Reno that comes up multiple times just consistently gets shit on by Custer. They had some sort of an old deal a few years before this. The, the big gripe was that Custer basically underneath his command was a bunch of like Custer loyalists. There were like three of them that were related to him. He even hired like one guy was his cousin who wasn't even a soldier, but he hired him as like a scout or a tracker. He didn't have any scouting or tracking skills. There was another one of his like cousins or it brothers, was a little brother that a brother that was like the cattle wrangler who maybe didn't have any experience doing that. So he would, and then he had a couple actual family members that he had put into command positions that they shouldn't have been in. It was nepotism. Yeah, and so, like, even these, like, Irish soldiers. So, at this point, like, the 7th Cavalry is essentially mounted soldiers on horses. Mm -hmm. And how these soldiers, like, a couple of these strategies, because we'll touch on them later, these guys haven't fought in actual combat. They've trained. So, any of the tactics that they have used to train... That's what they're taking into battle. They're not able to, they don't know anything else. And that's really going to come to play when this thing kicks off is that you're going to see that all of these tactics that they learned or all the ways that they practiced are like just a detriment to their chances of survival. Well, you're fighting a completely different beast. Opposed to fighting the South and understanding like that there's only so many military strategies, fighting against Native Americans is a completely different battle. Well, at, because this point, at this point, there's been 30 years of Native American combat, though. Because, not, not to this point where they're fighting this many, though. No, no, no. And that was one thing, too, that was a huge disadvantage for, rightfully so, like for the um, U.S. Army, is that they had this notion that the warriors in Native American tribes, when they were presented with combat or like an opposing force, would turn and run away. What it actually was is it's a strategic retreat where um, that's where you get the term parting shot. Is you would be running away and strategically pulling your forces back. So as they came in, you would be picking off their guys as you're retreating. So by the time they got to wherever your fallback point was, there would be a lot less of them. The, the Native Americans, like, that's like saying, well, they wouldn't stand out on the fields and fight us. Like, of course they're not going to fucking fight like that. If you have a smaller force 
and you're able to go ahead and ambush people and not take losses yourself and everything, why would you want to fight in a straight-up, like, gunfight? Not to mention, it's war. Everybody has a different strategy. It's not that you're running away. It's just this is a different strategy being used. This isn't like uh, a, a war within our lifetime where there's... Rules of engagement. No. Shit. This is there were no fucking, rules. No, that was the one rule: is there were no rules. It, you're, you're dead, or you're going to kill someone. Like mm-hmm. that's how it is. Kill or be killed. That's that's the rule. And so you're not sitting there being like, "Well, this isn't very honorable." Be like, "No, I'll fucking shoot you from the trees, and you'll still be dead, and you won't even be able to tell anybody about it." You think that's still not how war is, though? No, there has to be when it comes to like. I know there's rules of engagement. You have to be fired until, you know, you can't fire until fired upon. There's certain treatment with prisoners. Ain't going to be any of that shit here. Uh -uh. Okay. So kind of getting back to Custer. um, He ends up getting brought back in and assigned to the seventh cavalry. And he's put under, uh, it's Terry. I think that was kind of the the general that was put in charge by um, Sheridan. And Sheridan was the uh, inspector, uh, general of the military at that point, I think. I don't don't know know what what that's called. I don't know what it was called at that point either. Next in command. So their goal was basically not their goal. Well, yeah, I guess their goal was essentially to force these Native American tribes off their lands into reservations. They knew that there was going to be some type of either resistance or there was going to be fighting to do it. And they, they planned essentially to break up into these groups. And so this takes place actually, is this taking place in the, in the Dakotas or does this take place in Montana? I, I believe it's the Dakotas. It it may have been, it's a little confusing because I don't even know what state lines were really drawn back then. Yeah. I, like I say, there was no North or South Dakota. It was just Dakota. But what happened to kind of start the, the opening salvo of this was they had agreed at the national level that any Native Americans that weren't going to be on their reservations were going to be considered hostile. Uh, Grant gave Sheridan the power to take offensive or actions against anybody that were deemed hostile. So they sent out a like scouts and runners to these reservations mm-hmm. and to these different bands of Native Americans. They were told that they had until and, and this is in the dead of winter. Sheridan really wanted to attack in the dead of winter because he knew that they were going to be broken up into smaller bands that they could take out easier mm-hmm. and easier. I don't think he realized that like nature and storms and shit don't really work to one side. Yeah, he wanted to attack, but I think this was sent out a little a few months before winter because when they eventually got the messages, there were like three camps of Native Americans. There was the fuck you. This isn't your land, we're not moving. There was the okay, but hey dude, winter's coming, we're still hunting and gathering food. So we'll make our way onto the reservations when we can make our way safely onto the reservations with our people. Then there was the camp of Indians or sorry, Native Americans that were like, okay, we're going to just going to go now. And because there was a resistance essentially to it, that's why they were able to essentially launch that operation during the winter for some reason. I, I, I think it was a little bit, this all I think took place during the winter because the second meeting that they had was in September of 1875. And, when they sent out the letter to, or the runners to the native American tribes, 
they told them that they had to be on reservations by January 31st of 76. Oh, that's right. Yep. So it would have had to have been during the wintertime when it happened. Like you were talking about with the groups of Native Americans, there were the people that were just going to abide, go back to the mm-hmm. reservations. There were people that were so far away physically from the reservations that they wouldn't have been able to make it in time. Yeah. And then there was that third group that was like, fuck you. If you're going to come, you're going to come. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to figure this out the way that you want to yeah. figure this out. And... So by January 1st, any Native American that wasn't on a reservation. January 31st. Or February 1st. Because January 31st was the last day. That's right. So if you were still off reservation February 1st, your ass was considered hostile and you were going to be taking action upon once they run up to them. And (laughs) I didn't really know a whole lot about, like I'd heard a lot about Crazy Horse. I didn't know to the extent of such a warrior badass that he was. Obviously, he had to be. That's why he's getting that fucking... Uh, are they going to finish that? Is that finally finished? The Crazy Horse uh, Monument? Oh, uh, over by... Uh, it's right. It's in like it's at the very end of Mount Rushmore. It's like a different bluff. I, I'm sure they don't have their best and brightest trying to get that done as soon as possible. No, I uh, think it's... Is it? I want to say it's, it's done. That'd be something to look up. Yeah. So, uh, Crazy Horse was just a, a certified badass. He had won a lot of different wars for them against other warring factions that they had been in contact with the crow and, uh, kind of sort of like he ended up kind of falling out of favor because he wanted to focus on more of like a home life. And I think it was by the age of 30, he hadn't had a wife or a child yet. So he kind of settled down from fighting and ended up having a child. Didn't live past three, had a wife, but it just kind of settled into being more domestic than a wartime guy. And in March 1876, there was a village that was run by, I think I said it was Old Bear was his name. Old mm-hmm. Bear or Old Bull, one of the two. They end up getting overrun by um, General Crook, who will come into this story later, brought 400 soldiers in burnt down that entire village. All the refugees from that village end up in Crazy Horse's village. They say, hey, these guys are on the attack. They're on the defensive or on the offensive. They're coming this way. So then Crazy Horse and his village end up taking the refugees in. They don't have enough room. Then they end up migrating to meet up with Sitting Bull. Mm -hmm. And once they meet up with Sitting Bull, they tell him what's going on. Sitting Bull knows just through the grapevine of knowing that this attack is coming, that they're starting to move these forces in. They're off reservation, so they decide that, obviously, there's strength in numbers here. Sitting Bull sends runners out to all the reservations, basically saying, we're going to fight this war for you. We're going to try to gain our independence from them. If you have warriors, please send them to our village. And this village just starts growing and growing and growing. So... 1876, that was the, did you see the Sundance ceremony? That, that was right before everything happened. That's yeah. a little later down the line, but just fucking nuts. I love this shit. Well, the fact that, like, he, and of course, I don't, I'm not going to say he didn't see something or anything like that, but I think a lot of these guys that were in these positions, these, you know, these higher chieftain positions, I think they had a lot of foresight to see what they had to do to try to save their people. And there was either the fight back or try to kind of maintain it's, it's what happens with, um, sitting bull ends up like leaving and going into Canada and taking his people with him. Crazy horse. After up, this happens. Yeah. And then I think crazy horse doesn't, he surrender himself after this, like to Missouri, he does something. But what I'm saying is that they have this 
getting back, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked on that. Um, they do this Sundance ceremony, and basically it was this religious event. It's like their biggest religious event of the year. And basically it's like a time for prayer, personal sacrifice. Someone said that I think Sitting Bull, like, during them, and they would just fucking dance. And, like, for days. Oh, yeah. And they said, like, during this, he was, like, carving off pieces of his flesh and during this. And then he passed out for, like, six hours probably from the fucking blood loss and exhaustion. Obviously, they're using um, substances. I don't know if it was peyote or something, but uh, something to elicit kind of more of a a spiritual feeling. Of course. And Crazy Horse, or not Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, Mm -hmm. during this ceremony when he goes up to dance for the sun god or whoever it is, they take 50 pieces of flesh from each arm as a sacrifice Mm. given up to the sun god. So he's literally having people shave 50 chunks of flesh off of his arms. And as he's dancing, I'm sure you're going to get to the the vision that he had. As he's dancing, he gets his vision and he sees, uh, what was it? It was soldiers falling into his camp like grasshoppers from the sky. And this was at the same time that the U.S. military was conducting a summer campaign to force the Lakota and Cheyenne back to the reservation. So either he had the foresight to actually see that or he just had a really good trip and saw the right thing. Because that was in his that was already something that had to have been something in his mind. But that just brought it full force. Yeah, it just triggered that emotion to maybe try to see an outcome. And he then had that's to what he's smart enough to know. He's like, there's like two ways this goes. Either we leave or they come. Mm-hmm. And. And we're not leaving. Yeah, came here to chew bubble gum and kick some ass, and we're all out of bubble gum. Like you're, you're there. You're you're planted in. Your village is growing, and from a lot of what I read, it was just the numbers of Native American warriors that were just piling into this village. They said that it turned from a village to a small town, and from a small town to a small city in just a number of like weeks. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of one of the biggest failings of the American government was they thought that they were going to be fighting against like bands of 40 and 50 warriors at a time, which if you send out 200 guys or whatever, you'll be able to snuff out 40 or 50 guys pretty quick. Yeah. They didn't count on the strength in numbers that they were going to get to. And I don't know if it was their scouts that were maybe feeding them bad Intel. No, it was, it was complete underestimation of, both their the size of the village and the size of the congregation of the Native Americans, they also, they weren't, like, they had no thought in their head that there would be an actual, like, battle. They thought it was all them just running away. That was just the common thought. But what they didn't realize is the way that the Native Americans, like I was saying, they would do, like, a strategic retreat where they would be picking off targets from the distance that came closer. If you never got closer to them, it would look like they were just retreating and you were chasing them off. But well, had had you pursued them, they would have kept taking out your... We're going to get a prime example of it during the battle about how their strategies do work amazingly yeah. well. And one of the battles coming up, Rosebud, that kind of is the, the precursor to this Little Bighorn War... Um, the strategies that you're talking about were almost... The way that I equated it to was like a not necessarily like a dive bombing attempt, but they would choose certain specific targets, whether they were generals or somebody that looked like they were higher in command. Mm -hmm. They would send all of their warriors at that guy 
if they got him good. If not, it was like you say, a turnaround and retreat. Mm-hmm. They were swooping in. They were trying to take out these specific targets because they knew that they were outgunned and outmanned. Mm-hmm. So if you could get in and knock out these strategic places and then retreat, maybe you're taking less than just standing up and fighting face-to-face with them, which well, their horses were smaller than the cavalry's horses and the American horses mm-hmm. because they were just they were wild horses that they had broken. They were faster. They, they were, were faster. Just, they, they were, were more maneuverable. It was, you were fighting like tanks against like cruisers. Well, also you have, you know, they realized that at some point, if they take out the command structure, most of the cavalry troops don't know what they're doing. They know how to take orders. They know what to do if someone tells them what to do, but they're not going to form up. They're going to turn and run. It's, they had a, a very strategic plan and they sort of abandoned it for better success. Excuse me, but this village that we were talking about that was under Sitting Bull, they had gathered bands from the Cheyenne, the Oglala, the Hunkpapa, I believe it was called. And this village, it spanned like almost the entire valley, they said. It, it stretched so far they like said it miles. Was they said a hundred lodges. So that makes me I think, think it was more than that towards well, when they finally... No, no, no. So it was 100 lodges. They said the population was about 4,000, and then it was also about 2,000 warriors. That's a hell of a lot. I know, but I'm saying like maybe lodges aren't also counting teepees and stuff like that. No, lodges would probably be like meeting places or... Or more permanent structures and stuff like that. So, because this apparently had been a, a, like a settlement for a little while, and it had just grown. And of course, they were used to living on... They could put up structures very quickly. This they, was their thing. They were still moving around the valley in the areas. These different kind of fights were taking place. And they would move sort of to strategic positions, which their um, most strategic position, at least that was thought, was this little Bighorn Valley. Because there was an entrance to it to get into it, basically, where the mountains had kind of calmed down. But it was almost a choke point to where if you were to go into it and they knew that you were coming that way, you mm-hmm. would just be picked off before you could even get into yeah, the it. Yeah, it was a naturally a more advantageous natural position, defensible mm-hmm. position. The plan on the U.S. Army side was essentially you have – there's a fort actually in Montana that's essentially – I don't know if it's to like how much further west of Little Bighorn it is. But they were supposed to send their detachment, and that was under Gibbon, to set up a position where once the um, force coming, I think, from the east came in, they would drive the Native Americans out to this other, like, kind of shield force or, like, blocking force. I don't know what their goal was, is to, like, capture them and then forcefully relocate them to the reservation. Because, like you said, at this point, they're all hostile. So are they just trying to, like, force these people into, like, a kill box? Um, from the way that I read it, it was, they were coming from all these different angles until they got into the strategic positioning for little Bighorn. The idea, once they finally got there was Custer's force was a little bit better trained. And I think it was cause he sent a lot of the new guys with Reno on the scouting missions, mm-hmm. but Custer's force was more the attack force. Whereas Gibbon's force on the other side was like to stop them from escaping. Yeah. So, so they were the blockade to keep them from getting away while Custer's force drove the fight and drove the offensive into them. Yeah. So you had Terry who was in charge and then Custer, one of the guys under it. So basically he took 
Custer, and who did he put Custer with? Crook, right? Uh, Crook was gone by then. Oh, that's right. Okay, so he took Custer, split him up, and then Terry went to go and take his men to hook up with Sheridan. Terry was kind of like the quarterback of the situation. He was out on a floating barge for Mm -hmm. basically the whole thing, and he ends up coming in and making the save. But Well, I don't know if you really can call it a save. He brought people back instead of letting them sit out there and die. But the other one, um, let's see. Where are we at? What did happen to Rosebud? Because you said that was the precursor. Okay. Um, Just a, a little bit before that. Sheridan's plan during the winter time was delayed. It was also delayed after they had sent out the order for them to come back on reservations because there were still storms and different issues that they were running into getting out there. And also, uh, our boy Custer, not our boy, but the boy, General, whatever his name was, was out on furlough. Him and his wife were back in New York fucking around. He wasn't even at Dakota or wherever he was supposed to be in Bismarck to lead that troop in. So the whole idea was for everything to all happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. But Terry was so shitty running Sheridan's plan. He could never get everybody on the same clock. All of it was based on trying to the element of surprise. It was, but it was based on all the forces either attacking or Mm -hmm. being in the same place at the same time. And, um, Crook's group, Wyoming is the, I don't know if it was cavalry. I think cavalry is smaller, but his column was the Wyoming column that he was leading. And uh, he led them following down the rivers. And I want to say it was the Powder River that they were following. They had found foot trails that they were from the migration from the other tribes that are coming mm-hmm. to this village. So they were hot on that trail. Mm-hmm. They get to Rosebud, and it was after, like, I want to say, like, a 34-mile stretch or something. So everybody was really tired and worn out. But his scouts had already gone ahead and looked around and said, hey, this village is big up here. Let's hunker down for right now. Let's get some sleep. Let's get some rest. Let's recharge. Let's let the whole train and everything get caught up. Once everybody's resupplied, got a little sleep, we're going to go in and attack. And... When I say the whole plan was that they were supposed to kind of converge at the same time and attack at the same time, mm-hmm. they were also given orders to where if they had a good shot at engaging, mm-hmm. they were just supposed to engage. Okay. So it was either wait for everybody or if you have a clean destination to where you know you see it and you can engage, engage. So as they're camped out at Rosebud Creek, there were a couple uh, hunter-gatherer groups that were out. They spot them. They go back to Crazy Horse. They're like, yo, these guys are close. They're Crazy Horse or Sitting Bull? Crazy Horse. And then Crazy Horse goes to Sitting Bull, says, my scouts were out there. We saw everything. Crazy Horse was kind of more in the line of let's sit and wait, and Sitting Bull was the same way. The younger warriors that were in the tribe said, fuck that. We're not doing that. We're going on the offensive. Finally, after a little bit of back and forth, they decided we're going to go on the offensive. We're going to go out there. We're going to kill these guys before they get to us. We're not going to bring the collateral damage to us. We're going to take the collateral damage to them. So they set out. I think it was about a day's ride. They get there to Rosebud Creek, and immediately, once they engage with Crooks, um, his column, it's just an all-out offensive. It... They threw the kind of the dive bombing strategy of going after certain strategic mm-hmm. targets. They throw that shit out the window. They just bum rush them. 
straight up attack like we talked about with their horses they're more agile they're easier to move and <laughs> crook is just taken aback he has no idea what to fucking do they got the jump on him they didn't see him coming and they end up taking not a ton of casualties um i think they said it was around 25 native americans died and then between the Native American scouts, the Crows, and the Shoshone that they had and soldiers, it was about 25 for Crook's side. It was enough to make them retreat. And the only reason that they got away the way that they did was because they made the Crow and the Shoshone that were with them basically be the last line of defense. As they were retreating, the Native Americans that they had on their side were the ones that were fighting the war mm-hmm. against Crazy Horse yeah. and his band. So... <laughs> once they finally escape and get back, um, they get back to, they go like all the way back into Wyoming. Like they, they go a, a fairly decent way back in and they stop at this place called goose Creek. They're trying to figure out what they need to do. And as crook is talking to his kind of lead scout, he has a, a bad native American name, but he says, let's go back. And the guy goes, no, they all just rode back into their village and they're going to be waiting for us at this choke point in the valley. If we go through there, they're just going to slaughter us before we get anywhere. And the the crow and the Shoshone that were with them kind of separate themselves. They get together like, yo, these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. We hitched our horse to the wrong wagon here. All the Native Americans just leave them. They just take off. They're just like, we saw what you did in battle. We're done with you. We're not supporting your side anymore. We'll meet you on the other side if you guys make it through. Yeah, Yeah, we're going home. So Crook and his band sit there for about six weeks. And the foresight that he didn't have to send a letter out to say, hey, we already engaged. They fucked us up. Let's maybe take a step back and realize what happens. We're not going to be where you think that we're going to be on this plan. Just never fucking sends it. And in the course of that six weeks, this whole battle of Little Bighorn already takes place before his letter gets back to uh, Sheridan and said, hey, just, we're not there. (laughs) We retreated. Well, how many rounds of ammunition did they? So he had estimated that they wounded about 100 Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and whether that's killed or just wounded, it's a little confusing to know. But it wasn't nearly what he thought. In in that estimation, he estimated that there was about 25,000 rounds of ammunition that it took to kill 100 of them. Okay, so here's the thing. This is why one of the tactics I was talking about earlier. So what they would do is cavalry were trained when they were getting into their, like, firing lines. I can't remember what they called them, but there would be, like, 10 yards of space between each guy. And what they would do is they would take one of the guys, every fourth man would hold the horses of the other three guys. Mm. So he'd be holding four horses. He would then be behind the command officers who were then back further from the line. Yeah. Well, these guys that don't have their horses have to take all their ammunition and set it down in front of them when they're standing there. They're loading muskets too. It, which, no. W- no. No? I thought they said that some of these were musket fires. They were black powder at least. Some of them on the Native American side. That I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know that Native Americans had guns at yes. this point. So in in this circumstance, during the battle of Little Bighorn, they found that probably there. And then of course they're estimating they can analyze like because of course none of this got cleaned up. No. The, the shell casings are everywhere, so, and people have just scoured that area looking for stuff. They've been able to match up certain rifles that were in use at that time, and how they're able to determine if they were whose side they were on. So. Um, oh, that's right, because that's how they figure out about Custer. Huh? Yeah, so Custer, 
all of his men are equipped with a Springfield rifle and a, like a Colt revolver. 45. Each gun uses a 45 caliber. All of their casings were brass, is that right? I think, yeah, something like his that. Were, theirs were brass, and I think his was nickel. He uh, had a, a different kind of casing on his bullets because that's how they. We'll talk about or that. The, there were the revolver it. or something, maybe. So. A revolver. What the Native Americans had, though, because they were able to still do open trade at this whole point with, you know, travelers, trappers, hunters, things like that. They'd acquired like different rifles, different guns. So you had roughly about half of the Native American forces during Battle of Bighorn were probably armed with like bows and arrows, which they were deadly with. That's the weapon they'd use their entire lives. If you got close enough for them to hit you with an arrow, you were going to get hit with an arrow. I assume the range of guns was probably better, but. At range, I think the accuracy of a bow and arrow was probably better. So they had a mix of also half of them bows and arrows. About uh, 25% would have like muskets, like black powder rifles mm-hmm. and everything. The other 25% would have more of like repeating rifles. like Springfield. The, uh, the repeater ones. Oh, the ones that would have like lever like action. Like a pump action, lever like action. Lever yeah. action. And would have of different variations between Remington, Springfields, and a whole bunch of different manufacturers. Whatever they, they could get off of the travelers coming through yeah, whatever that area. they got from, from buying from, you know, anyone that would sell to them. So with the Springfields, the reason that – and some of the guns that the Native Americans have were even better than what the U.S. Army had. The reason that they chose these Springfields is they were really reliable, which you had to have if you were going to be out on the frontier like that. It had to be something that could stand up to a ton of fire. It had to be something that was rugged, that could stand to be dropped and, you know, had... Not going to jam on you. Exactly. And so it was called a trap door rifle. So you would have to fire. And then there was like a trap door that like in the bottom that swung open that you had to then feed another round into, close it, and you could fire again. Mm. Nice catch. Yeah. Um, They found that you could fire about 15 rounds on this a minute which isn't bad fire three seconds no, reload not at all but the thing is is if you're within a you're close enough range for the Native americans to be getting you with bows and arrows these guys would just grab a grip of arrows and be holding them in their hand while they had you know holding it and be just pulling them off their hands or be putting multiple you know pulling them out of a quiver in the back loading it there just was some that could hold them between their fingers and then fire different ones while on horseback so even though you know I don't know how it would have changed, of course, if the Native Americans had only bow and arrow, of course. But it was pretty, as far as firepower goes, I think it's pretty... Formidable. Yeah. I, Yeah, I, I had no idea that the Native Americans had guns at this point. It totally makes sense, though, with the, the trading and everything. It just never really entered my mind. And Well, and think of it this way, too. Anytime they got in um, engagements with the army or someone that was attacking native american land or anything like that they took everything that they got off those people yeah I, they could acquire all their ammo of their war. Team, exactly they did a lot of their damage too while whoever they were fighting was on the retreat because having the faster horses and just being kind of the skilled marksmen that they were it's so much easier to fire off arrows and guns when you're not always being fired upon mm-hmm. So as these guys are trying to cross over these rivers to get away, they're still just getting plinked and picked off. And this basically takes Crooks all the way out of this whole entire fight. Like He's just out a little bighorn at this point. He's back home in Wyoming. They've fucked off. They're not dealing with this. So now you just have Gibbons, 
who's in charge of the Montana column, and you have Custer, who's still in charge of the Dakota column. Or, yes, and then Terry is breaking off part of that to take and meet up with Gibbon. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're basically just, it's almost like a pincher, pincer mover, whatever they want to call it. I don't know what that is. Okay. <laughs> so The only thing I know about pincer is when they talk about it in uh, Super Troopers. Uh, yes. Classic pincer fashion. <laughs> Um, they break up the Dakota group under Custer and then under a guy whose name is, uh, where is it? Custer took the seventh cavalry and they went Southwest and the other part of Montana. Why am I not remembering this guy's name and why can I not find it on here? Montana goes to Northeast to block the escape. Uh, So that's name. That's kind of, um, that's all of Montana. So all of Gibbon's crew goes over to the opposite side. They're going to be standing at the they're other end of the valley. The side, cause they're, the, yes. they're coming out of that fort in Montana. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they break up the, uh, Dakota into, I, why am I having such a tough time finding this? Cause I do not remember this guy's name. Uh, I have to take a bathroom break anyway. Okay. Let's look it up while yeah, we we'll take it out. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high POD. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically HI. All right, and back to our show. All right, back from PP. All right, so it's Benteen. Yep, Benteen was the guy that I was trying to put my finger on. Okay, so. He, he was sent away to continue scouting around to see what he could find. He had a lot of the reserves they had as far as like medical supplies and ammunition to replenish, which I don't know if they just didn't expect to need all that. And I'm sure had Crook gotten that message out that they were using that many rounds to try to kill that many Mm -hmm. Native Americans, they probably would have kept that guy closer. Seems like that would have been a good idea. So Custer takes off. Um, Gibbons had already taken all of his people to the other side. Their plan from Terry, Terry had gone by boat. I guess he must have been in pretty rough shape because he didn't want to be mounted on a horse or anything like that in battle. So he was out on like a steamship down the, I want to say it was the Yellowstone River. Yes. Yellowstone River, that sounds right. And That's so crazy to think like, I'm just going to keep taking the steamship. And it was like a good sized steamship. Yeah. It was like a barge. Yeah. He had a real nice position. I'm sure once he found out what happened, he was probably pretty pumped that he was on the barge and not in battle. Whenever you're reading something and looking into, like, when it tells you what direction they're moving, is it sometimes difficult for you to envision, like, directions? And, like, when they describe Constantly. a place? Okay. So I, they, I've had the toughest time going through this, and I probably should have looked at a map. I know sort of where the Dakotas are. I know that Wyoming and Montana are both on one side of it. Mm-hmm. I little bighorn is in Montana. Oh, is it? Yes. Okay, so coming from the Dakotas, they would have been able to come from the east side. Yes. Okay. So how it describes it is, and I know I keep going back to this. So basically, Terry's like, "Peace out. I'm tired of hanging out with your asses. I'm gonna go meet up with Gibbon. We're gonna be the blocking force. We're gonna wait for you to flush them out, and then they're gonna run into us. You, meaning Custer and." Um, Benteen, 
you guys are going to go essentially south and we're going to then try to kind of have them sandwich between us. So the directions kind of sound weird when they're talking about it. Um, uh, there was a, the southwest, which they were attacking from that side. And the northeast was the side that was supposed to hold them in. Mm-hmm. And essentially, there's also like a river that's separating the U.S. Army from the... But again, there's places where they can cross and get their troops across. Well, well that was a, a lot of kind of what fucked them up was uh, there were certain rivers where they would try to get across and they would send a few guys out to see. See if you could ford it. or. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and in the beginning, they were having a lot of trouble because coming through before June. winter, man. Well, not winter, but you have all the runoff from the mountains that are going down the river. I know, but this is still like in... There's yeah, still, it, Montana, there's still snowstorms. Yeah. But it's still warm enough that it's sending so much water from the that. mountains. I'm talking about you're having to walk your... your horses and potentially if you have any type of well i don't know if they have any infantry with them i think they all did they they did because that's what happened before they split up before terry splits them up into groups he goes hey custer would you like to take the fifth cavalry with you and he's like no i'm good seventh is good yeah he's like the seventh's fine he's like we're his uh, whole idea was that he's this fucking war celebrity and he's like what you mean you're trying to kind of hone in on my glory because you know that the seventh is going to take care of this and I'm not going to have you say, well, it was only because I provided assistance. She's like, we don't need your help. Then he offers him, I think he, I want to say a bunch of infantry tr- troops and like six Gatling guns. And he's like, no, I'm not going to take those either, which that's actually, there's some actual thought behind that because the Gatling guns he had served in the Civil War, he saw the performance, and while they could be a, a great asset, they were almost a hindrance in the fact that you had to tow them. You had to move tra- them. Yeah, and they, they were, were on like a trailer that was towed by horses and everything. There were six of them. Plus, if you took the infantry along with that, you were only going as fast as guys could walk. The reason, though, you would decline the 5th Cavalry to give you more fast-moving support was just fucking ego-based, because he's an asshole. The other thing that really fucked them up was their just complete non-understanding of when you would set up a camp, you would be able to see where this camp was strategically placed because where they were doing their cooking and they were starting their fires, Mm -hmm. you could see that smoke from miles away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their scouts were really pissed off because when they would stop to camp at night, the scouts would go on ahead and they would look for other fires from villages or anywhere that Mm -hmm. they needed to be at. But in doing so, they would also be able to look back at their own camp and see how bad they were giving themselves away. So even though they were advancing onto this big village that Sitting Bull had, they were still being seen as they were moving forward because they couldn't hide these campfires well enough at night that the village would see them approaching just as much. I can't remember if it was Rosebud or if it was Little Bighorn, but at some point when they were trying to be discreet, they had like shot some buffalo. Like when they were just on like the other side of the hill from mm-hmm. like the village or something. So they weren't being like super smart about this. And I can't remember, I'm not going to say it was in one or the other. It might have been in the rose, but I want to say. So the thing though with Custer is he's like, okay, we're going to sneak. Basically, this is all going to be, we need the element of surprise for this. So at one point, he was having his guys march like at night to try to get closer because they kind of had a general idea. They didn't know definitively where this village was. They didn't think it was going to be as large as it was either. 
I don't think they thought it was going to be as large as it was. I think they did kind of know where it was, though, because they were sending these scouts out to they see were, the fire. but they could only scout as far ahead as they could then come back. Well, and they could only see so far out yeah. as there's forest in this area and different kind of mm-hmm. natural covers that you wouldn't be able to see the stretch. So at one point he tells Benteen, and I'm going to kind of set this up. So you basically have the area where Custer and the U.S. Army is moving. Think of them being like north. And then the entire village for, you know, all of the the Native American Alliance is directly south. And right in the middle cutting across is the winding Little Bighorn River. So kind of the order of how it goes is Custer sends Benteen out. And he's like, I need you guys to go ahead and get to go search over here for the village. Because they had, like I you were saying they had an idea. They had a general idea of where it might be, but it was still a huge lay out of land. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, we know it's at this pinpoint. We have to like still scout. So he tells Ben Teen, he's like, you guys take your guys up to this hill and go scout and see if you can get a view. I'm going to start taking my guys essentially further down and get ahead of you guys. Well, Ben Teen gets up to his, he sends a couple of his scouts ahead. They get up to the top of this hill and they're able to see off in the distance, I think it was like 15 miles away, they're able to see a section of mm-hmm. the village. And so Benteen sees that, and Custer's already riding ahead. And again, Benteen and Custer don't like each other. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of animosity toward Custer with his whole, like, I have my own family in here, like in command positions when they shouldn't be a lot of nepotism. So guys that weren't in his circle, not exactly his biggest fan. So Benteen takes his time catching back up and just kind of starts walking back down the hill at a a nice leisurely pace while Custard goes up ahead. He sends, he eventually gets within sight of, is it like chimney smoke or dust? Where he can tell that there's like a large... It's the cook fires. It's it's all the fires that are in the village that are sending up. And these scouts are going and standing on top of these ridges. And they can see down into the valley. They can see exactly where these fires are coming from. And they're going back to report to him. And part of the reason why I'm sure Benteen wasn't in a hurry to get back to Custer. But he also was saddled up with all of the donkeys that had been pulling shit for days on they end. Had the baggage train. And yeah, like the supply train. You can only move those animals as fast as they're willing to go. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can kill them if they move slower and everybody else moves faster. You're just, just at their them. pace. Yeah, yep. exactly. Well, at this point, too, so like Reno gets sent like on the other side of Benteen to attack like from the east. So Reno gets his orders directly from Custer. Yes, he's like, you're going to go this way. And you're going to attack from this side. And he tells Reno, you're going to have the full support of all of us behind you as well. And so if you're looking at a clock, that's the easiest way I think the order of battle is. Benteen is like at 3 o'clock. Custer is at 10. 10 or 11. Reno's like at 5 o'clock. And at 6, 7, 8 is the Native American Alliance. So Reno ends up being the first one to get up, like, to the village. And I don't know at this point if he just starts firing, if someone raises an alarm, or kind of what happens. But before he knows it, he's getting the shit kicked out of him. Like, they're the Warriors, like they thought, they thought they were just going to show up, maybe fire a few shots, and all of a sudden the Warriors were going to be running away. And that's not what happened. So... 
when they get up, they get around a bend of trees and he sends out a right flank of his soldiers to the right hand side of him. As they're coming around this bend of trees, they see this village right front and center with them. He sends out his left flank of Native Americans that they had had, the crows and the other that were with him. And they were supposed to be his left flank, but he didn't have the benefit of having the trees like he did on the right-hand mm-hmm. side. So they start volleying shots into this village. They're killing a few women and children. And, excuse me, obviously we don't know the resistance that came, but the way that I want to think of it as, after they got a few kills in, it was just a barrage of fighters that had come out to meet them on the battlefield. Like, it was... They it was basically like they were throwing rocks at a beehive, and then as soon as the swarm realized that the beehive was under attack, mm-hmm. they just full on came at them. And it, I I think they had kind of gone away from. They saw what worked at Rosebud, so they went on the attack like they did at Rosebud. It was just a straight out mass attack. They weren't running these pincer moves or anything like that that you were talking about. It was just. Your line against our line, Native Americans were firing arrows, they were firing guns, ended up really getting a better jump on them. Because I want to say it was, um, what was it? Reno had only had maybe a couple hundred guys with him. Yeah, that's what I'm actually looking for right now, is to find out how many they had. Because I know that they had all together was 700. And I know that Custer took the main group with him. He had the largest group, and his was like 200. So it couldn't have been So I think Reno, I want to say Reno had like 120, and then I want to say Benteen had something similar to that. And then there was also, yeah, I think that was it. So it, it was divided where it was more heavy for Custer, and then the other two groups were smaller. So Reno basically has to have his guys get into a like a dismount and then mount again type situation where he's trying to get guys to like fire and be able to go ahead and pull shots and, and kind of do after he starts getting his ass kicked, like a strategic retreat and try to keep some of his guys. He, he gets the yips at this point because I want to say it was somewhere around a thousand, uh, warriors were coming towards what they had. Oh yeah. And did you hear what the part that really sent him over the edge was? Trying to get back over the river? No, so he had this guy that he was friends with. Oh, scout that's right, that was yeah. The Akira, uh, Erikara scout. His name was Bloody Knife. He was shot in the head, <laughs> and it splattered the brains and blood right into Reno's face. He got Jackie O'd. Oh, man. And so, not saying this guy shouldn't have fucking been there. Yeah, he shouldn't have been standing there. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're coming. I'm, I need to go ahead and say this now. At no part of this podcast am I pro-U.S. Army here. No, we're, we're pro-Native American. Yes, through Native through. American all the way on this. That's like, why we're telling this story, because Thanksgiving, the Native Americans don't get their shine. This, they got their shine. Yes. So, at this point, Reno is trying to pull his guys back. And during the course of this battle, at a certain point, there's going to be three hills we're talking about. One of them is going to be Custer's Hill, where he has his last stand. There's uh, Reno Hill, and then the Reno Hill is along with, he's going to meet back up with Benteen. He's going to come back in here in just a minute. And then there's uh, Calhoun Hill or something. So there was a center hill kind of in between them. And to me, it sounded like they were more like ridges, like ridgeline. I feel mm-hmm. like there were more ridges than hills, but there were valleys in between all of them, so I'm sure you could call them a hill. Yeah, and I mean, some of these are also like, 
so, you know, close enough to see what's going on or to kind of have an idea, but too far to help each other. No, so like a like half mile away. You're hearing the gunshots ring out pretty clearly, but you don't know. You're not in a supporting position where even if you want uh-huh. help, they'd all be dead by the time you got there. And you don't know if the gunfire is coming from your side or mm-hmm. their side. So Just, Reno what? ends up getting chased back up the hill. And as they're retreating... They're just getting picked off left and right again because they have to cross back through. I'm not sure if it was the Little Bighorn or what river it was. They had to, uh, what was that fancy word you use, ford? Ford back across the river? Yeah, something like, yeah, ford the river, I guess. No, is fording the river where you... I don't fucking know. That's where you go across it and then... I'm trying to think Oregon Trail. You forded the river, you went across it, right? Maybe. Okay. Could be. Uh as they were trying to get back through, the Native Americans were literally shooting them in the water or getting down in and pulling them back across. Like it, it was a major impediment for them to try to get away. Oh, yeah. So as they're taking casualties back there, uh, Reno ends up scurrying to the top of the hill, and they get enough of a strategic position to where they can kind of fan out along the hill well, for a little a, bit of protection. Benteen. So Benteen has been kind of taking his time. Custer has sent back like a runner a couple different times, basically being like, hey, we need the shit up here. We need all the ammo. We need the extra guys. Let's go right now. They're not good notes, though. Like no. they're they're written in a way to where it's you don't know if they're they need help because they're on the offensive or because they need help that they found someone yeah. or it's just very ambiguous as to what each one of them means. And here's the thing. During this time when he's telling Benteen to come up, this isn't really even when Custer is under attack. The, Na- the Native Americans haven't really kind of focused their attention on him yet. The one that got closest and first engaged was Reno's group, and so they're just, like, all focused on them. As soon as Reno's group gets chased up the hill, Benteen's group is finally meeting up with them, and that's where they set up on their hill. And Benteen's like, what the fuck happened to you guys? He's like, he's like we've been getting the shit kicked out of us. You're not going to believe this if I tell you. Benteen is like, okay, well, I'm not fucking going down there. Let's just stay here. Let's dig in and stay here. Defend ourselves, like... And a big part of it was uh, they gotten the letter, for, or they gotten the carrier, courier, whatever the shit he was, from Custer saying that Benteen needed to be over there. And Reno's like, no, man, you're here. We're going to wait until your pack train shows up. We're going to fix my guys first mm-hmm. before we go find Custer. Like, let's get us good before we go find Custer. And a large group that had chased Reno up the hill had then branched off. So there were, they were still coming up and attacking on Reno at that point, but a large group had cut off and gone, I maybe West North, some shit like that. And Just they get toward the fighting or away from the fighting. Uh, they went towards the large group of warriors went towards the fighting that was going on after they had chased Reno up the hill. So that they branched that, off. They were going to Custer site. So basically how it works. If I'm talking the clock again, that's the easiest way. Does it make sense when I do no, that? But that's, Look at the It'll fa- make sense to people smarter than me. Okay, so look at the like act like you're looking at the face of a clock. So what happens Analog. is the center of the clock is the center of the picture. No. Okay. Custer's group is like at eleven o'clock. And when Reno gets attacked, they're all the way at like the four o'clock position, all the way across this battlefield on the other side of the village. Custer tries to circle around, stays on the opposite side of the river from the village, and as soon as they're done with Reno. All of them pivot, cross the river, and go to attack Custer, coming from, like, kind of south. 
I don't think it was quite all of them though, because Reno was they no, still no, no. had to they, create they a broke, defensive and position. And of course, at this point, it's not like as soon as like they start Reno and the Native Americans start fighting on their side, the whole village is being. It's not like everyone was alert at that point. That was just the first people to initially respond on that side. You have this entire village where you got two thousand warriors that are all of a sudden waking up. And realizing what's going on and they're taking up arms and getting on their horses. So there's a lot of, like, forces getting marshaled at this point. Reno and Benteen are hearing fire off in the distance, too. Like, so it's not just them under attack. They, they, the, <laughs> the funny part about the whole Custer and his last stand is the only information that we get from Custer's last stand comes from Native American sides and then what they found afterwards because none of the men that were with Custer ended up surviving. No, people from Reno and Benteen's Hill did survive. Yeah. Because they were also closer to the point where they could actually retreat and get back. Custer's side ended up getting cut off. And they, nobody survived. I think he had 200, it was somewhere around like 210 troops that he had taken Mm -hmm. with him. And every single one of them was slaughtered and massacred. And this center hill that we're talking about, maybe it's a center hill. It's somewhere where I think they had a better vantage point of Custer's Hill. They were watching down below as the natives were on their horses. And all they could really make out was that the natives were firing at objects on the ground. Mm -hmm. Turns out what was happening was the natives were flying around on their horses. And they weren't just shooting at inanimate objects. They were shooting at all the soldiers that were trying to retreat and get away from where Custer's Hill was happening. Mm -hmm. So Custer's last stand was taking up on top of the hill. They could see in the distance that these Native Americans were firing on objects. They didn't realize that they were either going through and putting kills shots in mm-hmm. these people or if they were just escapees that were trying to get away well and so as soon as they start going after custer he kind of retreats and starts pulling the men up this little hill now this is going to sound weird but the way it's been described is there wasn't enough room at the top of the hill for all of his men which at this point i don't know if you have your full 200 or if guys have been picked no, off i'm assuming some guys have two. been picked off and you're all up there with your horses and shit so Custer, of course, we're also talking about ranges that are like talking about like rifle warfare. So if they're saying not everyone could fit at the top, I'm not saying you got 200 men packed together. Everyone's still kind of spreading out. And you're ineffective packed together. Correct. So you would think you would have the advantage of the high ground, though. However, all they had to do is the soldiers what um, some of the Native American tactics, what they would do. They weren't just going to charge them head on. They had mm-hmm. rifles, they everything. So they would kind of encircle them and just ride around in circles and make these little glancing passes and just take off, take and pick off one guy when and they came in. They would start to circle tighter and tighter as they took out more people. Exactly. Or they would try to also separate groups. Like if someone, they would like sweep in and try to kind of pick off like stragglers. And so you had Custer on this hill and he was able to arrange. They were the ones that I think held out out of all the people that actually died the people on custer's hill i think were able to hold out the longest just strictly because they were also the soldiers that were around a command structure where he could be telling them when to volley and when to all fire at the same time to hold off but they also you know the way they described it apparently like the native americans would be far enough down the hill where they couldn't get rifle shots at them but they could also then just arc their uh, arrows and just launch them into this area where these 200, you know, whatever guys were Custer's troops. The other issue that the native Americans ran into, which 
brilliant to use your surroundings on the American part, but all the horses and dead men and everybody that had already been picked off and taken down, they pulled them up and basically turned them into barricades that they could hide behind. So these animals or dead soldiers that were in front of them were taking the brunt of all the fire they were power. They using meat sandbags is what they were doing. Basically, yeah. Meat well, sandbags is probably the best way to What they were finding, that. too, is the Native Americans knew, you know, it, it would take, with those calibers, unless you were perfect with your shot, it would take a few shots to kill a horse. Oh, yeah. You could just wound a horse, though, and it would, but, and it could survive, but what it's going to fucking do when you wound it, it's going to fucking run. It's going to go nuts. Well, all of their shit's still on these horses, so the Native Americans were finding that they were aiming at the horses to hit them, too, because it was taken off with all of their supplies, and it took off with their cover and their means of escape. Fucking smart. Very smart. Yeah, you, those horses are just a cache of items that are needed. Well, yeah, to and fight so that's the war. why they ended up. And of course, at this point, all of the people with Custer have just been getting their. Everyone's been dying. Mm-hmm. They know that this is. No one's going to come in and save them. I, they know that this will be essentially why this is named Custer's Last Stand is because this was everybody's last stand that was in Custer's area. Mm-hmm. And so, it's as a direct result of him. Having no fucking clue what he's doing. Stupidity, hubris, whatever you want to call it. He he thought a lot. I don't know if maybe he underestimated the Native American forces and how smart they were and how big their group of warriors were. He believed that they wouldn't put up a fight. That it would simply be him picking off and picking them off as they ran. The other thing, too, I don't know if I mentioned it. When Custer was able to actually scout, when his scouts found a location to be able to see it, they could see a lot of the village. They were his, like, uh, Native American scouts. I can't remember mm. what, the not our Kara, what were the other ones? Crow. Crow. And so when he went to go see it, he had not, they had seen it at night, could tell the size of it. By the time they got back to Custer, Custer was able to move up to actually take a view. It had been morning, and it had raised the mist in the mm. valley, and it completely concealed all of it. So he was making his decisions based off what he was told, without ever actually seeing something, or knowing the, even the strength of his enemy. There were several points of this when they were like, they could have been like, we don't know enough about this. We don't know how many guys are here. Well, and that, uh, they were jumping the gun so much, but I do truly believe that Custer, and they alluded to this before when he branched off uh, Benteen. Benteen was kind of pissed because he got sent away to go a completely different direction. I don't know what the thought process was between, like, successfully winning a war back then and, like, how much shine you got. Benteen thought that he was partially sent away because he wanted, or because Custer wanted basically all the glory for himself. He did. Custer would bring, this is going to sound weird, but you would somehow get, like, did I already use the term war celebrity? Yeah. So that's what he kind of was. And one of the things that they would do is they would bring journalists with them on these campaigns, not necessarily to the battle itself, but with the whole baggage train and support system, be able to kind of wine and dine them, make themselves, you know, and then they would use that to further political careers when they came back. So people would know their names and know their accomplishments and everything. Maybe Custer could get back to New York instead of being stationed. And if, if you had to pick out just based on what we know of this douchebag, who would play him in a movie dead or alive? Do you have someone you're thinking of? Uh, it depends on, like, are we talking historical documentary? No, no, no. Like a movie about just, like, you get to see Custer as just the asshole he is. He's the villain. 
he dies, who's it going to be satisfying to see play that role? Oh, or who would be good enough okay. to be the the bad guy? Uh, initially, my first thought was Rodney Dangerfield, as far as like just somebody who's a bumbling idiot that thought that they were going to get the jump on somebody. I I would assume. Hey, that, with these Native Americans <laughs> shooting at me, I can't get no respect like that. Yeah, no. Come I, on. I, I think that that would be that way. I would say if it was more of like a serious thing. Like, I want to be like, you're clapping when he dies. That kind of movie. This is going to sound weird, but I somehow see blonde, long-haired Patrick Swayze. And I know he's not usually the bad guy, but just being able to play such a douche. Kind of like he plays almost like an overconfident version of Bodie from... Point break. I just immediately see like a, a portly gentleman, like a fat man. I see somebody who's round in in girth. I I see someone who's like like more of a Ben Franklin frame is what no, I see. I see someone who's like the pompous asshole, like the prince in Shrek Two. Oh, I'm just talking Charming. about physically, like physically in order to match it. Like I feel like this is more of like a Marlon Brando body really? type. Yeah, I, I think. I, oh, hmm. Just from like a. A pear-shaped man who has an inflated sense of ego. Because there's something that, and we'll talk about it when we get to Custer's Last Stand, which we're right on kind of the precipice of. But when they find, when they go through and they kill everybody in Custer's Custer's Cluster, that's that's a nice one. I had to think about it for a second. Custer Clusters. They're looking for this great American soldier that they've been talked about, and he had long blonde hair. And before Custer went out onto the battlefield, he had long, flowing blonde hair. He actually cut it when they were in New York before he came back. Mm -hmm. So they were circling around Custer's area looking for this long-haired killer that they knew was like he'd taken down a lot of Native Americans, and he was a war war celebrity like you were talking about. They, They knew that there was somebody out there like this. They had no idea that it was Custer that actually had the long blonde hair that they were looking for because he had already cut it. So they were searching around the battlefield, obviously killing off everybody, but they were looking for this great war hero that they wanted to basically scalp or behead to have this long blonde hair with them. But they didn't touch him. Because they didn't know because he had cut the long hair and that was the only But defining... he would have still been blonde, right? Here's the thing, though. He was one of the only bodies they didn't touch. Yeah, and I... and. And they knew what, like, the, what a rank was. You think they knew that? Yeah. Dude, you have these, like, uh, you have these Native American guys who are, like, negotiating treaties and shit. Like, that's that's one thing, too. I Because, again, like you were saying, we only get the Native American side of it, which is the really the only side of it in this scenario. The best but, side of it. Yes. And you had a couple accounts of, like, Native American soldiers saying that they were the ones that killed Custer. They were shooting guys in the back while they were trying to get away on their horses. One guy said that he had shot a guy wearing a buckskin jacket, and that was, like, the famous thing that Custer was known for, was, like, wearing a buckskin jacket. I could see with the fringe. Then maybe that's why I think that he was a thick boy. Yeah. But um, they ended up finding him. Go ahead and get into the last stand. And then I'll kind of get into what the information was, what how they like got his body and like kind of what happened to it. Okay. Because everybody else's body got fucked up. I and just to push back on kind of what you were talking about as far as him kind of not being messed with, he didn't get mutilated like a lot of them did. But 
so when Custer was found afterwards, they knew that he had maybe taken a lot of it was a question of like, did he just run or did he actually try to fight? And they believe that he actually did try to fight because like I was talking about earlier, all of his infantrymen and everybody had brass shell casings for their weaponry. Well, he didn't have any, he had his cavalry guys. They were all cavalry. I, what, what word did I use? Infantry? Infantry. I just said oh, all of his soldiers. So, yeah, soldiers. Okay. They all had brass casings, and he had nickel-plated casings that he used in his guns, mm-hmm. so I don't know if it was like he had, a, if he wanted it different ammo. It was a Could status. Could be, yeah. Shit. Totally status. Look, look how they look. One is all kind of dull, doesn't have a finish. You've got the silver on your belt loops and everything. Mm-hmm. Come on. So... He had a, a Springfield rifle like that that took these nickel casings. They found nickel casings around the area mm-hmm. where the battle took place, where his last stand took place. So they knew that he had fired that. He also had two revolvers that were with him. They think after they found him that there were spent casings in the revolvers. He was found with a gunshot wound, I believe it was in the left abdomen. No, he got shot in the head and in the chest. Uh, well, it was the chest one first. Okay. So... When they find him, they see that he has bleeding coming from the chest wound, Mm -hmm. but the bullet that they, it must not have been a through and through, but the bullet that entered his head came in from the left side, so they didn't know because they didn't know if he, like, Mercy killed himself, but what they found when they looked at him was he, the mass bleeding came from his chest, Mm -hmm. and the head wound didn't have any bleeding with it, so Mm -hmm. it would have been delivered post-mortem. So whether it was a double tap by a Native American or something like that, they knew that it wouldn't have been a kill shot for him, because A, he was right-handed, and B, there was no blood, so it would have had to have come after the body had already been deceased. So he didn't get desecrated at all, but he also had They just had to make sure he was dead. Yeah, you always want to make sure that nobody's going to walk away from it. It's the zombie. It's the zombie theory. (laughs) So, I mean, honestly, his, the deal they make out of his last stand, here's the thing. When you first heard of this and everything, the way that it's presented, Custer's last stand, and the way that you've taken it when you were younger, it's made to sound heroic, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's made to sound like he's a martyr. Like he fought, he, he fought to the death for, for, no, he was doing something fucking shitty and evil. All for gold. Not only that, but like for his own, yeah, for his own personal gain. He seems like the type of person who would be doing this shit even if he wasn't in the army. It was just a, a gold or glory for him instead of actually fighting a good legitimate and fight. Fortune. And like, yeah, it, just the, the way it's, you know. That's why they call it the Battle of Greasy Grass. That's why we should. That's what we should call it. It's the Battle of the Greasy Grass. That doesn't get the good search engine, though. No, I know it doesn't. But just calling it the you know Custer's Last Stand, the Battle of Little Bighorn, even calling it the Battle of Little Bighorn is good. But Custer's Last Stand made it sound like you know he's fucking heroic with a grenade in one hand and a fucking assault rifle in the other and firing at the top hill. We don't call World War II Hitler's Last Stand. No. Which, maybe it wasn't, but we'll get into that eventually. But, yeah, we tell this story as uh, we were the poor, lowly, down-and-out losers that were taken advantage of and killed by the Native Americans. When, in all reality, this story should be that the Native Americans were more American than the Americans by trying to fight and save their land. This was a an offensive that was brought on by the American people. And before this had happened, 
the year before Little Bighorn had happened was the it was like the year that had the least amount of Native American and white people deaths. Mm-hmm. It was the least bloody year between Americans and Native Americans. God damn it. It was the least bloody year between white people and Native Americans on record. So it wasn't like they were amping up. It wasn't like there was more fighting and infighting that led to this. It was just strictly because they wanted access to the Black Hills to try to get us as white people out of an economic spot by getting a hold of that gold. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, I mean, it's pretty... Here's the thing, is his last stand isn't very ceremonious, like... He's an idiot. He got himself into a situation where he was vastly outnumbered. He got all of his men killed. And he ended up getting to the top of a hill around, you know, behind a bunch of dead horses. And he got overwhelmed and then he got killed. And that's really kind of the end of his legacy because there were questions. Like we said, there were questions about whether he wanted to stay and fight or he was trying to flee while his men were fighting. Like they, they didn't want to believe that he was actually out there putting in the grunt work on the field of well, battle. The thing, regardless if he fought like, or tried to run, like what is, what does him running do? It, it's, there's no redemptive part of the story with this guy. No, but had he survived, I'm sure it would have been a different tilt to the story, maybe, and he would have Oh, come I can out. only imagine how long it would have taken for any of this information to come out had he survived. But, you know, you do get people that were witness to the actual, like, series of events in Benteen and Reno's group. They end up, because Custer, I think, is taking, I mean, they've been kind of under attack this entire time, but not by, like, the majority no. of the the native American forces and they've had time at this point to actually kind of fortify and dig in their position where they can defend it easier. They're not just like on exposed ground. They've got like some trenches dug and they're trying to hold their, their own on this little hill that they've got. And so it's what, two days later. Yeah. Because they were supposed to, they were supposed to be coordinated the way the military action used to be coordinated was days at this point. Basically Terry was like, you're going to do this on the 26th. That's two days from now. You do this and we'll be sitting in this spot on the 26th to catch the Native Americans when they come out. So basically a day or two days later, all of a sudden, I don't know how far Terry and them are. I assume they're far enough away. Do you think they heard the shooting? They might have. I think there may have been a runner that escaped before shit was starting to pop off on Custer's Hill. Mm-hmm. They got down to Terry and said, hey, we're not going to win this. Because do you think Terry at that point is just like I'm just going to give it a couple of days to cool off? <laughs> they were probably a day or two's ride away from uh, Reno and Benteen's group to be able to move a, a, a sizable force that if they got jumped again they would actually be able to survive. Mm-hmm. It, well, and that I'm sure Terry wasn't going into a war zone without a formidable crew. No, he, so he was covering two, his own ass. Two days later, he ends up making his way and ends up saving. Uh, who's left of the Reno and Benteen. Uh, Benteen group. And that was, he was the one that brought the information to them saying Custer's dead, Custer's gone. Yeah. They they hadn't known at that point. I'm sure they probably had a pretty good inkling. <laughs> I think they were like a mile away, but who got, who knows if they could see anything that was yeah. going on. As soon as they stop hearing firing from over that, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume when you start, can you imagine that you're sitting there and you just hear, <laughs> 
and then it's just and you're sitting there for a second. There's just nothingness after that. And, and then you know that it's just it's on you now. They also they said that they would fight until night and then once night finally fell they would be able to hear the Native Americans celebrating at night. Oh, like, they fucked with them so bad. Like, their war cries and shit. So, like, they would stay, like, in the grass where they couldn't see him. The soldiers couldn't see him. And they said, like, their, like, battle cries were just, like, sound like dying fucking animals. Blood piercing. And Yeah, and they were just fucking with him and keeping him up. Just trying to drive him crazy. Yeah, and again, these were invaders. They mm-hmm. they came onto their land, so anything is possible, and anything should have been done. I, I like that they... Anything goes, man. They fucked with them, even at night. So, after they... Uh, after Terry runs into them, says, this war is not for us, we will not win this, they back out and end up going back to, I'm sure, their forts back in Wyoming and... Or, Montana, wherever the fuck they ended up going back to. Not a lot of people going back to Dakota, I don't think. I think Custer's boys were probably pretty well spent. I'm sure everybody that got locked up with Ben Team is probably like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't shit. die on this hill. This mm-hmm. this works out. I'm glad we got to go with this guy. And that was really kind of like you talked about where um, Sitting Bull ended up moving out, moving up into Canada, taking his colony that way or his tribe that way. This was kind of like the last hurrah for the Native American people because then they stopped being treated as a, a lowly individual group that would be picked off easily. Started moving the army in more. And eventually, once the army set in, they were able to overtake them, run them out of the area, and took over the Black Hills. Well, here's kind of the timing thing on it, too. The the timing for for Custer couldn't have been worse. They said that it was really unusual that there was a gathering this large, especially at this time of the the year. Um, they said had this been another another week or two weeks, they would have run into half of the Native American population. Um, just because they were moving, you know, across the land and everything. It just happened to have been at this particular time, wrong place, wrong time. I, and my only pushback with that would be is... Sitting Bull had called for these warriors from these reservations. So the the grouping he had, of and I'm people, sure he had a like I'm sure he had a even if you took away half his warriors, that's still a thousand. It was warriors. the sort of the separation that happened after this to kind of the the breaking apart was they what didn't you, have enough resources in that valley in order to sustain that many people. There wasn't enough grazing area for any sort of animals. Well, what did they think was going to happen for retaliation? Hey, yeah, I, I, that that's a good question, that actually. Had to I don't know. The, to me, that's exactly why I think Sitting Bull's like, I'm taking my people, I'm heading for Canada. And then you, after this, you get at some point, um, it's Sitting Bull and then um, Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse ends up turning himself into like the U.S. Marshals in Missouri or some shit. Because I think that they were scared of the... Re- and it's not like that we, you know, the U.S. Army wouldn't have retaliated. They probably knew what was coming back down the pike. They won the battle, but they weren't going to win the war. And that's the sort of, it's a great story. It's a great war that was won by the right people. And it seems like further on down the line, we... It was, the thing is about it though, man, is like, 
it's it's a battle. It's not the it's not they lost the war. Oh yeah, that's what's so. I was thinking about this the other day. What what do you think life would be like if, like, we would have tried to do more of a like a melding or like assimilation like with the like an Alexander the Great type where he would go into an area he would sort of adopt some of their practices and sort of ingratiate himself yeah like assimilate with the, it yeah basically assimilate with like the native populace take some of theirs take some of yours yeah make find some out like what kind of relationship would we like what would the country be like like I think we would have a much better relationship with the environment. Hands down, we easily. would have much more, you know, much more respect for just like the land. We would probably have God. We would have such a good culture. That I think is what I look at the most is, I when you look at like Native American beadwork, Native American patchwork, different designs for Native Americans, like a lot of like the Pendleton style of clothing mm-hmm. and blankets and different things. Those are all mostly, inspired. Yes. Those mm-hmm. are all inspired by that. I think geometric a, type of patterns yes, and shapes and, like that. And pottery, all these different things that you don't look at as far as like necessities in life because they really aren't, but it's a culture of bright colors and vibrance and just Really intricate special workings. If you've ever seen somebody do a Native American do beadwork, it's fucking fascinating. Like, think, it is very, very think cool. Think of like the celebrations we would have and like how they could be modernized. And think of like the peyote rituals and stuff like that. They would be just part of like, like, you know how everything kind of advances and you have your generation's version of it. What would be like the coming of age traditions or like the visual quest? type of like traditions nowadays that we would have. That's where I almost feel like it's tough though, because that was sort of like their religious part of their culture. And I think our religion would have pushed back on that even harder and not. I know, but I'm living in my land of fucking make believe here. So I'm just saying, what do you think it would be like? Had like, we just put those. I think it would be a lot better and kind of, yeah, hands down to your point of like the whole connection with nature. I found through my life, like I, you care about the environment. You take uh, ecology classes, different things like that. You learn more about the environment. You want to clean up the rivers. You want to make sure that that's all there. In my lifetime of drug taking and mind altering substances, I've almost found myself more on the level of being in tune with nature than mm-hmm. wanting to preserve it. Oh, I one hundred percent feel like I have some type of weird like connection. Like you're, you're smoking a plant that grows out of the earth. I feel like that then somehow like mentally plants you in the earth. Does that make sense? You feel more of the energy and, I, and this is a lot of hippie shit. And I only call it hippie shit because I, I don't really, I, I kind of, I, I kind of side with the hippies, but at the same time I like shoes and mm-hmm. showering and certain things like that. But you just say like more like a naturalist look. No, that naturalists aren't those nudists. I don't like armpit hair on women. That's not what it is. You're just like, like a, I don't know. You're you, an eco-warrior. You can feel the vibrations. Like I'm not going to go out and hug a tree, but I do feel like if you were to put your hand on a tree, you kind of start to gain a respect for living things around you that you never really understood were living. Like you, Walking up to a tree, you're going to look at that tree and be like, this is cool. You don't realize that that's another surviving being that's looking right back mm-hmm. at you and it's just as alive, that grows, that buds. I love that, being up in the hills. 
and be in stone just because you can look at just everything that's you can turn around and look and put like modern stuff at your back and if you're just looking at a mountain you're like i bet this doesn't look any different or maybe just slightly different than it looked a thousand years ago two thousand years ago three there might be trees in different places but this has not been touched this landscape i'm looking at this is what it looked like. The first person that stood on this spot where I'm at saw almost this exact same thing. It hasn't changed. It like it almost kind of transports you back. And, you know, you can almost feel how little you are in the fact that you are sentient, I would say, as far as humans mm-hmm. go, we're all sentient. Those things out there may not be sentient, but they're all alive and they're all living, breathing organisms that all work off of each other in order to create this. It's ecosystem almost like a survival. bunch of like smaller organisms on one larger one. Because if you do look at a forest, you're like, there's some order to this. Everything like, works. Like, look at these trees just growing in this section, and then these trees are growing here. And why don't these ones overtake, or how don't? And then you run into invasive species that are brought in by man mm-hmm. that end up fucking up these ecosystems. Yeah. There's a reason why they pay like a hundred bucks for every boa constrictor that you bring in in Florida. It's because that was introduced to an ecosystem to where that thrived and fucked everything else up. That is same thing with carp in the water. Carp in the water fucks everything else up for every other yeah. fish because they eat just everything. They're trash fish. Those were brought from China, right? Mm-hmm. As like a food source, like early China. Was that during construction of the railroads? Uh, I don't know if it was that or they're just easy to farm for meat. I think, and yeah, then absolutely. they would probably get away from there. They would break mm-hmm. out and they would get into the ecosystems and the rivers. But before man intervened in any of this stuff, it like you say, it was here a thousand years ago. It was here two thousand years ago. It's going to be here after we go away if we don't inevitably fuck all of it up. Mm-hmm. We're just a small player on this big planet of not understanding what nature will ultimately, they will be the cockroaches of anything that we do. You see places like Chernobyl where nature's taking back over mm-hmm. because it's been untouched. That's not because of the radiation. Aren't there like super wolves in Chernobyl that have been like affected by radiation? There's there's a lot of stuff over there that they talk about. We just don't know because there's deer at night where their eyes glow. Like there's shit like that that's been affected by it for sure. Yeah. But we have no idea what that whole thing that we provided fucked that whole mm-hmm. situation up. Well, kind of getting back to the last part of the topic here, what was the end result of the Battle of Little Bighorn? Well, if you're hoping to hear that things changed and we took back all of our shitty ways against the native people, you're going to be dead fucking wrong because we just figured out different ways to do it and forced them to reservations. We also did not give them back the Black Hills. What we did is in 1980, yeah, all the way to 1980, the Supreme Court finally ruled that they had been taken illegally and that the government was in the wrong and that the Native Americans were actually the, um, it was the Sioux, I think the Sioux Nation um, was owed. They determined it was a hundred million dollars. Which is nothing. Which is, is nothing. What they did is, oh, and it wasn't like, we're going to give you the hundred million and then you're going to get the land back. The hundred million is for the time we had it. No, no, no. It was, here's the hundred million. We're not giving you the land back. So what the suit is, is they have not touched the money in their, that account. The money sits in the uh, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, mm-hmm. an account, has not been touched, has accumulated interest, and it's worth, I think, uh, like a billion now, or half, oh, sorry, half a billion dollars. And 
it's like we don't they haven't they're like we we don't want that we want the fucking land yeah it's not and this is i I wonder what came to play for them to consider this like a suit that they would want to take up as far as the supreme court to offer it because i don't know when the gold rush in the black hills ended but i wonder if they realized after they had raped all the land of the gold then they started talking about it and then they realized how mineral rich it was with oil and natural gases and where they could frack it. Like, was I, this- I just think it all comes down to it being their sacred place. They don't have a monetary interest in it. No, no the the Americans. Oh, no, that's what I'm have, talking about. Yes, like yes, in order the for this has to monet- come about, do you this think is- they had already just raped everything before they realized everything below what the surface? The, what was the pipeline going through the Dakotas? Um, it's still all that shit about Keystone. Yeah, like. You, you don't get to just it's you don't get to just keep making and redrawing the line and being like nope now you need to be here now you need to be here. Well, and we saw it a couple of years ago at Standing Rock when they had the big protest. That was a, a pipeline that was going to be running through Native American land, and I don't know if everybody's just sort of ignorant to it. And maybe it could be, and maybe it's just the fact that there's a lot of people that study this kind of stuff. But a pipeline, once it's built, has to be maintained. And if it's not maintained properly or it's not constructed properly, there's going to be leaks. There's mm-hmm. going to be areas where yeah, shit gets fucked up. There's going to be environmental up. impact. Not and just in the construction of it, but the potential for yeah, disaster. Uh, yeah, not to say just the construction, which is already environmentally terrible, mm-hmm. and the ecology of the area will be irreparably damaged. There's also going to be leaks and other things that happen, and these pipelines are running over water supplies for entire reservations. Mm-hmm. And if those get compromised in any way, I understand that maybe that's a smaller percentage, but we fucking see it. And when you see it happen somewhere, you always know that there's a chance. Why in the world would you, if somebody came up to you and like, hey, we're going to run a pipeline through no. your backyard over your water, it might leak into your water and it might slowly kill you. Are you cool with that? No? Okay, well, too fucking bad, because this is what our deal is. We, you can't eminent domain native lands because these were things that were agreed upon after their lands were taken from them. Like it's, it it drives me fucking nuts when people only see this side of it. And it's the, the culture built around it of people wanting to be selfish and wanting cheaper gas here, even though it's all sour petroleum or whatever Mm -hmm. they call it, that we can't refine ourselves. We have to send it other places. They want to feel like that's going to make their lives better, even though it's to the detriment of all the people where these lines run through. Mm-hmm. I just uh, there's not a whole lot that gets me hopped up, but this is one thing that fucking kind of pumps me up a little bit. Happy Thanksgiving! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, motherfucker! Yeah, as, as you're sitting down to eat your meal, maybe don't necessarily think about. Listen the, to this. The first Do yourself a favor if you have somewhere to drive. I don't know why I'm saying this is the last part of the podcast because you've already listened to it. So hopefully you've listened to this on your drive to wherever you're having Thanksgiving and you can share some of our knowledge with your family or you can just bring up all of the results of the midterms or (laughs) the economy or gas prices or how everyone's doing. So that'll be fun. Uh, Pick your mode of fighting. Yeah, no kidding. Do you have any last uh, Thanksgiving well wishes? Uh, No, I'm I'm thankful to... Whoever listens to this podcast, I'm thankful to you as a, a friend first and a co-host second that we were able to get this going. It's been a nice thing, I think, in both of our lives to kind of separate but also stay close together. Doing oh, yeah, it. definitely. Yeah, I love doing this. I was telling I was telling the wife before this, I'm like, 
I love the fact that this is already planned every week to where I don't have to worry about if I'm going to be seeing my buddy. Like, yeah. this is just something we do and get a hangout. So I'm we're, definitely thankful for that. We're not meeting at the bar. We're not just talking mm-hmm. about sports or something dumb. We're actually digging in, kind of like you've mentioned in earlier podcasts. It's fun to explore these different parts of each other's brains because we've known each other for a decade now. But when you start to break down the nuts and bolts in some of these things, you start to see kind of how the other's mind works. And whether it's goofy shit like me thinking that I can fight off a gorilla with three of me or us talking about kind of how we feel about cultures like Native Americans or Incan cultures, different things that we've already gone through and things that we will go through. It's fun to see where somebody that you care about so much kind of falls on the issues. So maybe take that approach for Thanksgiving. Uh, Listen, don't always be the one talking. Take a little information in. Uh, We can solve this better than the Native Americans and the white folks did. Mm -hmm. All right, ladies and gentlemen, have a great day. May your turkey be moist. May your beer be cold. May your potatoes be buttery and warm. And just just enjoy that that pre-Thanksgiving meal bowl and then all of that food that comes to you. No judgment. No. Later, guys. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.